0: In this episode, we will be doing TFOS 1849 to 1862. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1849. Story number one. One ship written by Rednull 97. We thought those pesky apes an easy target. Sure, they had some strange tech, no one asked it. But so did we. And yes, they were terrifying to fight on the ground. But we didn't intend to do that. There were the multitude of other reasons not to attack the humans, but all were dismissed after short discussion. So it came down to numerical analysis. Far more than a billion military ships on our side, against a bit less than a thousand military and a 50 times that in civilian ships on theirs. Simple calculation. You outnumber the enemy almost 20 million to one. So you attack. One ship. They launched one ship. We thought them mad. How would they stop us with one ship? The ship didn't even head directly to us. It just landed on some barren planet and started digging. A huge dust cloud enveloped it. We were baffled. It wasn't even a military one. One hundred ships. When the dust cleared, one hundred ships launched off that now, even more barren planet, heading in our general direction. Our analysts came to one conclusion. Huh. Neat trick. But it won't help them much. Ten thousand ships. Each one was heading towards another planet. Started to dig with creating another dust cloud. Each time a hundred new ones arose, we should have seen it coming. But those ten thousand were still less than the expected fifty-one thousand, factoring in their civilian ships. So no one was concerned. One million ships. Now, some of the more cautious or intelligent beings in our government started to worry. But they were denounced as cowards or ape sympathizers and dealt with accordingly. One hundred million ships. A subtle state of panic rose through the ranks. But the war could still be won, right? They won't find enough planets to do that again, right? Right? How one billion ships will be able to hold the line. Right? Wrong. Ten billion ships. Those lunatics did it. Not one dared attack them now. Before we could organize and start a proper defense, they multiplied one ship by ten million and put those greatest of the galactic navies to shame. They outnumbered us ten to one. And no one dared make the humans feel that should be one thousand to one. So we surrendered, and they won the biggest by numbers of involved ships, and smallest by death toll, more in the galaxy, without firing a single shot. One ship. Damn you, Von Neumann, and damn your exponential growth. End of story. Story number two. Rock on! Written by a glass of whiskey. The alien looked at the strange human counterpart. Could you repeat what you just said? I said, look out for the knife. As in the elements for potassium, nickel, and iron. I see. <laughs> Very funny. He was not particularly human. But the human might pull out another pun, and he was not prepared for well, that just yet. Ah, come on. That was a good one. Had to look it up. Ah, another human waste of time, of course. Could you perhaps focus more on our studies instead what? This is our studies. Come on. What's it really for if you can't use some rot puns? The humans had been noted for their focused enthusiasm. Of course, that enthusiasm took on many different forms. One of them was apparently what must be an unearthly amount of puns about whatever they happened to be working on. Look, I have another great one. See what I got here? The human had pulled out a sulfur, tungsten, and a ring on the table. Um, a bunch of materials and your wedding ring. Specifically, sulfur, tungsten, and silver. Swag! The human made a startling noise as if he was about to die. He had learned previously, when he had tried to save that this was just his way of expressing a pun well done. The precise definition of well done pun was apparent only to humans and perhaps other humans, as he certainly could not distinguish between a good one and a bad one, in much the same way as he had been asked to choose which one was the most pleasant, pest or cholera. Rock on! He had memorized that one earlier from the human, since he used it so often that it had been more or less involuntary. Usually, it caused the human to shut up and get back to work. Oh yeah, rock on! the human finally seemed to quiet down and get back to work. It lasted only for a few minutes. Oh, here's an even better one. Apparently the human had gotten back to the work of finding more appalling puns. Please, uh, do not tell. His little masterwork of humor was not heard, as, or at least not acknowledged. What is the chemical formula for the molecules in chocolate? There are a rather large amount of them, but it isn't that primarily distinguished by the cocoa, which have three obomine in it, uh, so I would guess C7H8N402. It was unlikely to be correct, according to the human, but he prided himself in remembering that one. Carbon, Holmium, Cobalt, Lanthanum, and Tellurium. The human looked at him expectantly. That doesn't seem. It forms chocolate. C-H-O-C-O-L-A-T-E. The human beamed with pride. Ah, yeah. yes, uh, of course, sir. Uh, obvious in hindsight. Not even with foresight did this one make sense. You'll have to excuse me. He picked up his stuff and left. Maybe he could sit in the cafeteria. It was noisy and crowded, but he would not have to hear any more damned puns. End of story. Story number 3 Galactic League Searches Humanity's Internet History Written by Samuel Evans It was Salek's job to scroll through a species' network information system when they joined the Galaxy League. It was more of a routine scrubbing as their network information entered the Galactic's greater information core. He mostly maintained the subroutines and the algorithms that owe all the work. He wrote some of them too. Nothing too arduous. There was until today. Whenever information pinged certain algorithmic parameters, he had to personally review it for examples. Huh. On the human's network, the this rule 34 pinged the Galaxy League other species algorithm. Strange that they haven't had contact with anyone before. It's this moment that he often harkens back to when he tells himself he had to do it. It was his job. He didn't have a choice. He clicked on the interface He opened the files, something he would regret for centuries, and no amount of therapy could help him recover from. He'd even tried to remove those memories, but they were too strong for memory erasure. He didn't think anyone would ever, could ever, would even think of doing with that Garlac. He stood there, his mind slowly absorbing like a slow-booting computer that didn't even realize what it was running yet. But the images did not stop there. He had opened a lot of them with that click, and they began scrolling through. Even as a young him, he who had missed that mating cycle for too many turns, would not even dream up the Silenai tentacles, doing that to a humanoid. After he began to recover his senses and regain control of his body and mind, he pulled his side arm out immediately and shot the viewing screen, and then proceeded to hit the big red emergency button. That immediately purged the entire incoming data from the Human Information Network and shut down the Galactic Leaks Network for several solar days, leaving Octilians without access to communications and information. The ensuing investigation cleared Salek of any wrongdoing and deemed his course of action to be an underreaction. Several investigators were medically retired and admitted to the Galactic League Hospital mental wards soon after. Despite the danger arising from the situation, it was this situation that led humanity to discover their innate genius. They were actually a race of telepaths. Telepaths couldn't read minds of other telepaths, but they could indeed read the telepathic signals from others even if they floated through millions of light years of space. After all, Thoughts move faster than the speed of light. As for the humans' information network, it is still deemed a level 10 dark web threat that may only be viewed by the highest echelons on a need-to-know basis only and that access was only typically invoked to see pictures and videos of what humans call the kitty cats. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1850 The general and his loot, written by random three s. General Domain of the 5th Octurian Planetary Defense Force was in a terrible situation. After a disastrous battle, he had been separated from his army. Arriving at the fortress city of Loned, he was greeted by a meager garrison of only 100 men. 100 men to defend a fortress, a city that would usually have a garrison of 4 to 5,000. He knew the clock to his end must indeed be ticking, but he had a duty, and he would fulfill that duty to the very end. Meeting with the garrison commander, a young man barely in his twenties, and clearly only in command by virtue of the only one being left, he had to speak strategy. How far away is the enemy? the general asked. About a week, maybe a little less if they're force-marched, the young man answered. This was worse than he expected. The nearest force there could reinforce him was a good two weeks away at best, and that was just to get word for help, not even for them to arrive. What are their numbers? he asked. Now a few scouts estimate roughly 13,000, uh, and with further 8,000 following behind them. If they were also to add to the caravan guard to their force, they'd number 25,000, the young man answered. Despite everything, the general had to hand it to the boy. Young though he may be, he was working harder than anyone else to appraise what was going on. "'What are supplies and numbers like?' he asked. "'We have 120 soldiers, 150 if we recall the scouts. On the supply front, we can last maybe five days,' he answered. The general internally cursed. This was because of his fellow generals claiming all the supplies and men they could." only to lose them to that horde of insectoid monsters. The General himself barely escaped with his life. Watching as his men were torn to shreds by those dark Neck, insectoid monsters, was going to haunt him for the rest of his days. The enemy would be approaching only from the east as the valley boxed them in. So, at the very least, he could plan for some defense. He was sitting at a table covered in maps, lost in thought, as to what to do when he sought. it. A lute was leaning against the wall in the corner. He had learned the instrument when he was young and would often play it when he had the chance when on campaign. That's when inspiration struck him. A few generals in the humanities history had forced similar if not identical situations like the one he found himself in currently, but he could emulate them He would use caution and suspicion this race held for humanity, and weaponize it. Calling for the young commander, he laid out his plan. Will this work? he asked incredulously. Think of it this way. It'll either work or we'll die a little quicker. The general answered with a smirk. Meritable Bloodbath was leading his legion to the latest human fortress. After a great victory, where they forced these humans with all their schemes and traps into a real fight, he was pleased to be leading the force to hunt down the one human leaders that had escaped their clutches. General Domain was famed for being a master of traps and ambushes, always preferring to whittle away at his enemies, leave them shredded, then swoop in for a coup de grace. But not this time. Domain's army had been amongst those killed in the palace field. Now they would trace him to this little fortress that he named Lond. He knew his forces outnumbered Domain's troops to such an absurd degree that only a fool would think to fight. It was during these musings that his forward scouts had brought back a somewhat confusing report. What is it? Bloodbath's snarled. at the nameless scout. Apologies, my lord, but the fortress has no soldiers on its walls. The scout quickly replied, retreating a few steps in terror. None? Bloodbath shouted in confusion. Indeed? The scout hastily replied. This was worrying, had Domain already abandoned the city and its people to his wrath. This seemed to be most likely outcome. He had simply taken the troops still there and ran. He was saving his cowardly skin. It disgusted him even more than he cared to admit, especially as he had once considered Domain a comrade, albeit one from a rival people. With resolve, he pressed on till he reached a point where he could overlook the entire city. It was late in the evening, and the sun was already setting. He decided it would be best to leave the assault till the next day. No point in attacking a walled fortress city in the night. His men would just end up attacking each other. It was midnight when he was awoken by a commotion. Stepping out of his tent, he grabbed the first officer he saw. What's happening? Is it a night raid? he shouted. No, sir. Something is happening in the city. The officer hastily replied. Running to the crest that overlooked the city. Quickly following suit, Bloodbath saw every torch and brazier along the city walls had been lit. Straining his eyes, he could see more torches lit about the gate. They could make an out silhouettes walking along the ramparts. To his surprise, the gate opened, and a human soldier stepped out. So they were right out to face us. Bloodbath could feel the battle endorphins begging to be released but the soldier wasn't following ever by anyone else. Do they mean to treat with us? Budbath asked aloud, but to no one in particular. What happened next, though, only confused him. The soldier began hitting a large war drum. The loud boom was echoing off the walls. Boom, boom, boom. Again and again, the soldier struck the instrument. Are they inviting us to attack? An officer asked. Hey! It must be a ritual of some kind. Humans have many strange customs, another posited. Mudbath himself was mystified. What were these humans doing? Had they gone mad in the face of the enemy? But as fast as the commotion started, they'd finished with the soldier returning behind the gate, and then firmly closing it. Weeding doubt and confusion, very few of the command slept that night. It was only when the sun rose that they could get back on track. Leading the column as was the right of his general rode towards the city, he began to hear the sweet tune of strings being strummed. Arriving at the city gate, he was shocked to see it open. There sat the relaxed position on an overlook above the gate was General Domain. He was calmly strumming a lute, playing the sweet tune he had heard upon his approach. Do you surrender the city, General? But snarled at the insolent human, of course, I have come to welcome you with my music to the city with many narrow alleys and hidden spots ripe for ambushes, Domain replied, punctuating each reply with a light plucking of string. This began to concern Bloodbath. This was a general faint wish trickery. How many men do you have under your command? Bloodbath demanded. Less than 150, Domain answered. Bloodbath was sure now that this was a trap. What lunatic would open the gates to an easy-to-defend city when they only had one hundred and fifty men? You don't expect me to believe that number, do you? Bloodbath asked incredulously. It is not whether you believe it or not, for it is simply the truth. Please allow me to be your guide. I shall show you all the most beautiful secluded spots away from your men. Domain replied with a grin, oozing venom. So you can kill me, no doubt, Bloodbath thought. What would you do should I send my whole army in, Bloodbath probed. Why, there is nothing I could do, Domain replied, emphasizing the I. Bloodbath was now beyond certain. This was a trap, one where they would be slaughtered to a bug, where he would have to submit his men to his namesake. But he could be smarter than Domain here. He could refuse to fall into such a trap. I must apologize, Sir Domain. I must refuse your hospitality, Bloodbath said with a forced melancholy. Please don't. i put so much effort into welcoming party for you and your men, Domain said after Bloodbath's back as he was already turning his men around to march to a different goal. I still refused to believe that worked, the young commander said from behind a post near the general. In all honesty, I didn't think it'd work either. But when they didn't charge right in when you played your epic drum solo, I knew their commander was cautious due to my reputation, Domain explained. And I just have the nastiest reputation for being a scheming, backstabbing trickster who will trap and ambush any enemy. So all I had to do was play into that perception, Domain said with a grin. Well, one thing is for sure, you are going to end up in the history books for this one. The young commander said with his own grin. Not just me. Good old Bloodbath there will be right there with me. He will never live this one down when he finds out. Domain replied, finally breaking into a hearty laughter. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1851 Story number one. Where is your rider? Written by Whiskey Lullaby. Elytria stood at her desk, rubbing the soot of her face as the castle shook again under the weight of the orcish bombards. Her elven ears hang low as she grit her teeth, staring at the mystical battle map spread before, looking for some weakness to explore, something thin line to break through and regroup with the kingdom's forces. She was dragged from her reverie by the door of, she recognized the brightly colored uniform of the Jungerberg 3rd Regiment of Dragons, a human unit that had been assigned to her during their alliance's push to reclaim the duchy of Bortham from the Orc invaders. This was their leader, Captain Matthews, the only ranking officer left after the disastrous battle that had left them trapped here. He set his dented, plumed helm on the table. "'Your Highness, I think I have a plan.' You won't like it, but it's preferable to total annihilation than the death or capture of an elven royal. eletria froze, before saying, Was it that obvious? Matthews gave a grim chuckle. You're rather poor at lying, all due respect. Elytria stood, brushing some of the grime from her ranks of stripes. Well then, Captain, what is this plan you are so certain that I won't like? Matthews nodded, saluting. My regiment and I, as well as the remains of the high rock musketeers, will make a final charge here, and in an attempt to punch through the infantry lines and cut down the crews of the bombards and ignite the enemy's powder stalls. While they are distracted and disorganized, you'll lead the remainder of the Alliance forces through the gap before it can close. We'll hold it open as long as we can. Alicia was stunned as she stared down at the captain. Softly, she spoke, that, uh... Might work, uh, but, uh, it is suicide. Matthew shrugged. So is doing nothing. My men and I are cavalry. Our carbines are depleted of munitions, and all we have left are pistols and sabers. We are not made to defend walls or breaches. I've already discussed this with my men. If we must die, let us do so with glory. Nielf struggled with herself for a moment, staring once again at the map in hopes of finding some other solution but there was none. <sighs> Permission granted. I want the list of all your names. Each and every one of you is going on my personal shrine. Hang the traditions. If any of you survive this, you'll be nobles, she said, tears streaking the dirt on her face as the human nodded and replaced his helmet. I'll look forward to it, he said with a salute before dashing off. Less than an hour later, the battered gates opened. Melitria stood at the top of the gatehouse, to bear witness to this moment. A hundred dark horses, their riders shouting a war cry of their city-state, followed by an additional 150 elite infantry. The high rock musketeers dressed not in their battle uniforms, but the bright green of the parade dress. As she watched, the cavalry ate the distance between the besieged orcs and the castle, banner flowing in the wind even as the enemy camp disappeared in gunsmoke. Riders fell. Horses stumbled and flipped, but the charge continued. Their pistols barked once before being cast away. And even at that distance, Illitrius saw that it was a telling blow. As orc officers and marksmen fell and the defenders became disorganized. The riders drew their glowing blades as they closed. Another volley from the orcs and more brave riders fell. But then... They were upon them, crashing like a wave through the wall of sand, scattering the barbarous orcs with white of steel. The camp swarmed as they tried to stop the momentum, forgetting about the musketeers following behind the cavalry. Just as the riders' momentum fell and their numbers became dishearteningly small, the muskets got within range. One full volley into the swirling melee, and then a charge, bayonets gleaming. Together, the remnants pushed through the line as Eletria rallied the rest of the forces to prepare for the escape. She watched the doomed soldiers fight a corridor into the making. As one familiar dragoon rode hard towards the bombards, lit torch in hand. As he reached the great guns, he tossed the torch into the haphazard magazine. A great roar silenced all else as the guns and everything near them ceased to exist. Elytria made a good use of the sudden silence, rallying the troops within the castle and leading them through the gap in the enemy lines, stopping, only once, to collect a dented, room albort. She never forgot that day, for the rest of her life. End of story. Story number two. The Undying Specialist, ridden by Operation Technician. Caster troops rushed into the chamber, their armor cracking the marble floor. The Queen stood up and looked into the senses of their armor as the entire squadron piled into the throne room. They had broken through the station defenses, even as the last of their allies were wiped out. As the last of the caster troops piled in, forming a firing line at the other side of the chamber. The Queen saw the human mercenary walk into the chamber behind him. He stood slightly behind the line and smiled at the Queen. Traitor! roared the Queen in rage. That's how they've gotten through. Now to think that she paid for the most elite of the human forces. The Castle Troop Commander entered the room last. One of the four arms patted the human on the shoulder and took position but the rest of the line, aiming its weapons at the queen. Betrayed no contract, sang a musical voice, reverberating throughout the room. The caster turned around, staring at the human as she spread her arms. Fail no job. Six distinct pings sounded as a small metal object fell out of the human's hands onto the cracked marble. Lose no more, proclaimed the human as the 6 antimatter grenades and her belt pinged red and detonated. The caster troops were shredded, and on the opposite side of the massive throne room, the Queen was thrown back into a chair. The army marched on caster capital. The unrelenting hail of orbital strikes collapsed the shields, and the Queen's troops rushed into the city. The Queen herself riding on the flag tank, commanded the forces as they ploughed through the barricades, rushing to the main fortress. More casted troops flowed out of the city, and the Queen's advance was slowed, and eventually put into a stalemate. Casualties mounted. Surrender, Queen was heard over the city speaker system. The Castor Emperor himself was speaking to the invading army. Through the senses in the tank, the Queen looked at the top of the tower where behind armored glass stood the emperor, staring down at the burning city. Behind him materialized a shadow, and over the emperor's voice came an impossibly familiar musical tones of human speech. And if you fall, come back and try again. And now materialized human raised her weapon, and the castor emperor's guts smashed onto the armored glass for all the ground to see. She smiled down, looking at the queen's tank. Even as the caster began to surrender, gunfire rang from behind the human. Several shots struck the window from the inside, and her body collapsed, disappearing from view. "'How is this possible?' questioned the queen, blaring down at a three-meter height onto the human commander. "'What is?' the human looked annoyed and distracted, as if he had anything better to do than talk to the queen." "'One human killed my attackers before, sacrificing her. "'The same human killed the Emperor.' "'The commander looked up at the Queen, thought for a moment, and motioned her to follow. "'Stopping by the massive mechanized crate, the commander entered something, "'and a black cube was dispensed out the crate into his hand. Pocketing it, the commander led the Queen to the other side of the camp. "'The two walked to the tent. "'A massive machine stood at the center of the tent.' and a bored-looking human sat on a chair near it, reading his tablet. Another human was getting dressed in the corner, grumbling. The commander threw the cube to the man sitting by the machine. Sighing, the man pressed something, halting the machine. Recycling, said the machine, roaring too for a moment, and went quiet, dispensing another crystal back into the bank of such crystals at the side. Ready. The man inserted the crystal, and the machine came to life once more. The Queen looked on in confusion as the progress circle filled up the machine screen. A hatch opened and a convert rolled out of the fresh human, the same human that saved the Queen and killed the Emperor. The Queen looked in awe the Commander with impatience as the undying human rolled off the conveyor and sat up. Cracking her neck, she got up and ran to the locker at the corner of the tent, quickly dressing and facing the exit. A musical voice sounded, nearly shattering the Queen's already damaged consciousness. Oh, hello, Commander, sir, and, uh, Queen. Nice to see you again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1852 Story number one. Adventure. Written by British Tea Company. Landing down from the void in a flash of thunder, Thor Odinson emerged from his magnificent entrance, and moved through the throngs of fellow Aesir. His armor disappeared off his body in a shimmering light, and he moved through the halls of his home with haste. From the furthest edge of the galaxy, news had finally come. Muspelheim was mobilizing. Ragnarok was nigh. Father! The Prince of Asgard shouted as he threw open the two immense gates the size of skyscrapers. The erinjar stood impassively as Thor moved past them, all the way to the Allfather, whose eye opened to acknowledge his son. One ear lent to Thor's words, another keenly heeding the words of a small raven whispering its findings. I know, I know. The elder Issa mumbled as he rose from his throne. Part of it was directed to his anxious son, the reserve for his bird. Rising from his seat, the King of Asgard stood and tapped his scepter upon the ground. The lights dimmed momentarily. The holographic displays filled the room. The Inherial, which had been standing to attention, swiftly departed. Father news, Surtr of the Muspelheim, was last seen rallying. I know, Odin snapped irritably. As he approached the holograms, Cunin was just informing me of the situation before you loudly barged in here like a drunkard coming home from a night of revelry. Then shall we muster out Arby's, What does it look like I'm doing? All that muscle and armor must be slowing your head down these days. The old man snorted as his commands were typed into his display. Glancing over, his finger hovered over the controls before he sat down back in his chair, hand raised to his chin as though in contemplation. What ails you? I have dispatched countless in Herial to other tribes, from the ones around Alderbaran to the ones in Alpha and to the ones in Cygnus, Aquila and Lyra. Countless of our messengers sent to alert everyone that war draws near. Progress indicates that ever since first contact and our periodic gifts, the other tribes have progressed to a rate where they will be ready to fight by our side during the coming war. If that is the case, our numbers swell immensely. Then uh, what is it that look I witnessed earlier? This particular tribe, we seeded roughly two million years ago when the conditions on that system were optimal for supporting a new tribe. Thus far, they have merely dropped their feet into the vastness of space. I do not know if they will be ready. And you are seeking my counsel? Indeed. Though my brutish boy would rather swing hammers and ride solar waves than attend to a business of the galaxy's future. You still have your merits, Odin said with a mirthful chuckle, putting his finger to Thor's head. He gave it a second before putting away. There is the cumulative history of the past ten millennia. Are they ready? Thor paused a bit as he laid Mjolnir down. Leaning against the wall, stroking his beard, Thor. The prince of Asgard considered the factors. Born in the cradle of a beautiful world. Born with plentiful resources. The tribe at Sol certainly had stacked hand. The only thing that held them back was their relative lateness in seeding compared to their compatriots. Whereas the one in sickness and Aquila were already sailing the cosmos by the time Asgard remembered to check up on them, Sol was still only a fledgling to the flight of space travel. I see nothing but average intelligence displayed amongst their people, given how they were disadvantaged to start in contrast to the others, There is little benefit within that scope. However, their aggression as a people is only on the lower end, unlike the tribe at Alpha Centauri. I do not see the willingness to act and destroy. Foden nodded. The ones at Alpha Centauri almost cleansed each other in atomic fire, in a battle for natural resources, until the Enheriar stepped in. A rash and foolish move, but such brazen ferocity would make them fine additions to the protectors of the galaxy. With all the conditions considered, the tribe of Sol is nothing special, I'm afraid. mostly average, in my opinion, on most scales. But I would point to something special among them. Unlike the other tribes, we say the ones in Sol are comprised of the heterogeneous culture. This can only be explained that previously before, Others had migrated away from the seeding area rather than sticking to the place that we had provided. So, what do you see in that? An adventurous spirit, Thor grinned. The ones at Centauri didn't move across their world till they were suffering from overpopulation in their home areas. The ones at Sol moved whenever it was possible. Such a quality where one is willing to leave comfort to seek out the mysteries of their world should not be underestimated. I see, Odin said as he tapped Gungna once more. My decision is settled then. The Aneria will be dispatched to so. We will greet the people there and we will give them the same packages as our other tribes. I hope, Thor, that this adventurous spirit which you talk about proves to be a boon enough in the face of Soto's hordes. End of story. Story number two, The Beacon Builders, written by Timpanzee, writes. We have all lived our entire lives with the absolute certainty that alien life exists and is friendly to us. As soon as our technology had advanced far enough to search the heavens, we found the same signal in nearly all frequencies. Someone was screaming into the void, desperate to let us know that we were not alone. These beacons were a source of hope and inspiration for generations as we developed the necessary technology to answer the beacon builder's call. The transmitter we built was powerful. So we sent our message back to the nearest beacon. We waited for years with bated breath as the distance between stars is fast and light travels slow. An answer was expected as soon as the light delay would allow, but it didn't come on that day, nor any day that followed. Nevertheless, the beacons continued to scream their unchanging message of hope in all directions. Many theories were proposed as to why the beacon builders had not answered our call, but ultimately, it was nothing more than speculation. We needed to know why they were not responding "'and the only way to do so was to go ourselves. "'The speed of light, which for centuries had thought to be the absolute speed limit of the universe, "'was conquered, and we bravely went in search of those who inspired us to conceive of such marvels. "'The distance was great, but so was our resolve. "'We wanted nothing more than to meet these gods amongst mere mortals. "'Unfortunately, when we arrived at the Beacon, It had no crew and was so advanced that we could not tell if it had been operating autonomously for hundreds or hundreds of thousands of years. The only clue was an arrow, a beam of light, and a number. The beacon builders had told us which direction to go and how long it would take traveling at light speed. The journey would be more than ten times the distance that we had already traveled, but we needed to know what happened to them. We arrived at the red giant star full of four gas giants, three rocky planets, and countless orbital debris. It is, to this day, still impossible to visit the homeworld of the Beacon Builders. In their prime, they must have had billions of rotating cylindrical habitats orbiting their star. But all that remained of that engineering marvel was an impassable cocoon of high-velocity debris caused by a runaway collisional cascade. As a result... Little is known of the Beacon Builders. Analysis has shown that the Beacon Builders' home star was amongst the first 6% of stars that will ever exist in our universe and was one of the first with the metallicity high enough to support rocky inner planets whereby biological life could flourish. They were the first and only life to evolve in the early universe. Truly and completely alone. Despite this, They were courageous and raged against the dark. The beacon builders named themselves humanity and created the beacons so all who followed would be able to find each other and not be alone. All of us here, all species represented at this assembly, were granted the privilege of growing up together in the light because humanity survived alone in the dark. This is why we, the beneficiaries of humanity's kind. Pledged to uphold their values and morals, all species have the humanity given right to be guided out of the darkness and into the light. As such, the beacons will be protected and maintained for all eternity, so no one else need feel loneliness. That humanity felt when it looked up at the night sky and knew no one looked back. Thus begins the 1094th annual assembly of the Commonwealth of the Beacon Keepers. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, one thousand eight hundred fifty-three, story number one. Starlight, written by Cold Fire Knight. No one paid attention when the first star went out. We didn't really notice the next one either, or the one after that. Probably not even when the 10th one did, because they were all stars that held no practical value for us. The only reason we knew anything had happened was because we left scientific observation satellites in those systems, which reported that their stars had gone dormant. Even then, we thought that it was some kind of technical glitch, that the satellites must be malfunctioning, and that there was no need to investigate because we knew that stars do not simply stop burning. We later learned that was only a partial truth. They do not stop burning on their own. In all of our travels, we had never made contact with another sentient race, so we left solar systems untouched unless they could provide us with the resources or territory needed to continue our endless expansion into the galaxy. Not surprisingly, it wasn't until the 11th star darkened then we took notice. Star AK-10 did not have any notable planets or resources, but the star itself had intriguing properties, and we had established a research station in its system. That station was the first to witness the star go out. The personnel reported that radiation spiked before the light disappeared. Then the star was just gone. After that, there was nothing. We sent a team of three rescue crafts, The Innocence, the Mercy, and the Herald, to recover the crew and investigate the situation. With no idea of what to expect, when we arrived outside the system and scanned, we found nothing. No debris, no signs of radiation, no station, no star. It was all gone like it had never existed at all. We only found the empty blackness that we believed existed between galaxies. And we were afraid. Despite that fear, we wanted to learn what had happened, so the innocents moved into the system to investigate. Shortly after entering the system, communications with innocents ended abruptly, and our tracking systems could no longer detect her. There were no signs of violence. She was simply gone. The Herald's captain dropped a surveillance drone at the system's edge to continue observation, and ordered an immediate withdrawal from the closest solar system to determine their next course of action. Mercy and Herald plotted two return courses for home, then waited a full day, hoping the innocents would return or contact them. They launched on separate paths for their home port when the feed from the surveillance drone disappeared, stopping in each solar system they passed only long enough to drop a drone. The Herald arrived in Augury Station six days later, but Mercy never arrived. Augury Control reported it had received signals from four drones tagged as belonging to Mercy, but the last of those signals had ended two days prior and it had only lasted two minutes before going silent. The Herald's seven drones had also been vanishing, with only one still functioning when Herald arrived. By this time, reports had been coming in of other stars going dark and loss of communication with planets. The following day... The Herald's final drone ceased transmitting, but Augury also made contact with an unknown object that was alarmingly close to the station. The object slowly approached Augury and was eventually identified as a ship, but not of any design that was ours. It was colored dark, almost invisible in space, and built of straight lines and sharp angles. Herald was sent out to investigate as the ship ignored all attempts at contact. Once it reached visual range, we saw that the vessel wasn't colored dark. It looked to have been burnt. Harold held pace with the vessel as it continued to approach Augury when the station received a weak signal. This is the Terran explorer vessel, Aether. We are explorers and have traveled from another dimension. We were all amazed. All this time with no contact and with another race now they've been come for us from another reality. We have suffered a catastrophic, uncontrolled dimensional re-entry when our trance drive failed, dropping us into your dimension. I'm uh, so sorry. There was a pause long enough to make us think that it had ended before it continued. Our re-entry broke the barrier, and your reality is collapsing. There is nothing we can do. End of story. STORY NUMBER TWO SHE HAS ARRIVED WRITTEN BY looney 123 The sick doors clunked open, begrudgingly welcoming the nearly unresponsive pile dragged into the bridge by its forced companions. The captain smoothly rotated his chair to take in the sad specimen. When they had captured it, it had been armoured with truly spectacular equipment, an obviously elite soldier, and quite a valuable catch. But nothing had been gained of value yet. Days of interrogation that crossed the line to barbarism, and still nothing. And now, I had run in with another human ship. Judging by its downright diminutive size, information would flow much easier from its pilot. Even if any information was low value at best. But first, one last thing to try. The captain raised himself off his seat and plodded his way over to the captive, held upright by two marines flanking him. The human's eyes wandered around the bridge slowly, without much aim, dazed as he was, until they met the captain's gaze. They remained quite long after that. The captain spoke, and the bridge translated. You are resilient, to physical pain at least. However, I think even you are not completely invulnerable. At the challenge, the human planted his feet more firmly, and almost stood from its own effort. Nothing you can do can make me speak of anything worth speaking about. Although I can always remember the story about my dog again, if you want to hear it. The human slurred, giggling through the swollen lip and several recently missing teeth. I am not going to do anything to you, the captain rebutted, with a facade of genuine confusion. I just had the luck of running into another human ship, And quite a puny one at that. I'm going to take it, and you're going to get a different perspective of what you've been through. Only this time, upon a civilian. Humans care about that thing, don't they? He finished with a cruel flutter of his cilia. Even if the human couldn't read his body language, the message was clear enough. The human's eyes became more focused, stance strengthening as it shrugged its arms to try and loosen its captor's grips. I swore an oath before God when joining the Holy Navy. I shall not break to a heathen, even at the cost of an innocent life, it stated. The captain held the stare for another few moments before abruptly turning back towards the main view screen. That is acceptable. Bring it up here so that it can see the capture with his own eyes. He instructed the Marines. They forcefully maneuvered the human towards the view screen. The captain had already taken in the human scrap they called a vessel. Embarrassingly small, it consisted of little more than a large cockpit with several relatively long arms attached evenly around. The arms had unknown equipment along them, several hinges along them as well. Currently folded up, they bent back inward and down towards the capsule holding the pilot. To be honest, the captain was dumbfounded as to how it had gotten this far into space. That made little difference to the obvious course of action, however. Move to that ship, the captain ordered. At the ship's movement, the arms of the human vessel began to unfold. The human, consistently struggling against his escort, made his way up to the viewscreen and finally looked at it. The human collapsed. Only held up by the surprised marines on either side of him, the human started to tremble. Its eyes flickered back from forth from fixing on the human vessel floating in nothingness and the wildly flickering across the room without seeing anything in it, only to fix on the vessel again a moment later. Its mouth flapped open and closed, releasing random noises approaching animalistic and nothing at all. All eyes on the bridge were torn from what they were doing to watch this. Finally, the human broke from its state suddenly The human leapt to its feet, shoved off the marines to one side, and desperately tugged against the other towards the crew members, manning the bridge. Communications! Where is your communications? Commu. It screamed before being struck in the head by a marine still holding tight to its arm. Now, the human went totally limp. A few seconds later, it stirred, waking up to feet pressing down against the floor instead of arms to keep it off of it. It resumed babbling, which the translation software dutifully pressed on. It's... it's here! They wouldn't send... it's here. It's, they, they sent it! They... they God, God... God have mercy upon me! I... I've kept God! It's... they, they sent it! It's... it's here! The captain had become slightly unnerved. Stop staring at the human back to your business. I want more information about this ship. He barked. The crew spurred back into action and quickly produced results. Captain, there's an amount of energy from the ship. It's uh, incredible. The captain stomped over to the prone human. I want you to tell me what that ship is. If you don't, you will beg for your previous conditions before long. The human was silent for a moment, then snapped its head towards the captain's glaring visage. It's... (sighs) I don't want to know about the pilot. I want to know about the ship... Why does it require so much energy? The human was quiet for a moment before whispering up to the captain. Ships are considered female and it's... (sighs) Huh! He strained out. At that, the human went limp again, voluntarily this time. Lying on the floor, eyes bank, the human gave his own eulogy. I have done my duty to God and go to him now. His angel shall lead me through all and I will willingly follow. May these heathens perish into everlasting punishment. She is God's sword, and I will feel not the sharpness of her blade. Amen. The captain held his concerned look over the human for another moment before resolutely turning again towards the viewscreen. Captain, our senses have reached their maximum readings. That vessel is holding an impossible amount of energy. No matter... The unbendable will will not be destroyed by a ship that could easily fit its nozzle into one of our jets. Combat alert! A sense of urgency filled up the bridge. The human vessel hadn't moved since the start of the encounter other than to unfold its arms. It still sat looming in the expanse, waiting. But the shift in the ship, the human vessel once again moved into action. The arms which had unfolded to arch straight forward contorted again, this time... They ended up fully extended directly towards the ship. The vessel also began to float towards them. The human chose this time to once again have control over his body, leaning his head up to get a better view of the captain. He called out, You call this ship unbendable? The captain turned from the screen to face the human. It had a mad grin on its face. Yes, it is. The human started to deeply chuckle at that. The human vessel was now getting closer, too close to the captain's reckoning if the energy readings were correct. I want to haul through that ship now! His words were too late. In an instant the vessel vanished from view, blocking it was nothing. Not nothing, nothingness incarnate stood between the two ships, and it was approaching their ship. As the captain stood, watching his permanent grave fly towards him as the human vessel slowly escaped its pull. The human chuckled again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1854 Story number one. Hostile Takeover, written by Foxcorp. Within the secretive chambers of the Terraforma Corporation, three suited humans walked in unison. Each of the three had been summoned by Bobby Brown, de facto owner of the Terraforma Corporation the largest private terraforming and colonization entity in Terran space. Bobby and his fellow shareholders wish to turn Terraforma into the largest planetary transformation entity in the Milky Way. These three individuals have the power to make it happen. Emily Snow, CEO of Standard Energy, the largest energy conglomerate in the known galaxy, formed in 2017 in search of new fossil fuel deposits as well as to capitalize on the fusion market. It's a massive conglomerate of countless pre-unification energy giants. Saudi, AmeriCo, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and BP unified into a singular energy type. They've completely monopolized the energy market through ruthless business practices. Almost nothing is below this profit-hungry bead. William Tracker, chairman of the Board for Terran Private Defense, acting as a PMC for anyone willing to pay. They've been involved in conflicts from the shoulder of Orion all the way up to the room worlds. Practically every military in the galaxy relies on their hardware and contractors for ships and maintenance. Without them, no military would be capable of putting up a fight. Formed in late 2052, with the collapse of the conventional military-industrial complexes, the companies of Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Northcorp Grumman, and Raythor, General Dynamics, and BAE Systems clung together to survive. Now, they are nigh unstoppable. The final of the three, Jonathan Schmidt, CEO of the Bank of Terror, formed in 2175 by both human and grand law banks. It makes up over 75% of the private banking sector, the bank of choice for dictatorships, republics, and everyone in between. This bank had the power to swing money like a hammer giving those in need, making ungodly profits along the way. Escorted by a small army of security personnel, the three reached the end of the spacious hallway. They reached a large door labeled Bobby Brown, Majority Shareholder. One of the entourage of security opened the door, and the three filtered into the massive office of Bobby Brown. Massive windows filtered in the light of the Terran Sunset. A crimson sun just beginning to dip below the horizon of the gargantuan cityscape of greater Chicago. One of the four gargantuan swaths of ecumen within the old borders of the United States. Covering an area of Indianapolis to Minneapolis, the city knew no bounds. The view from the five-mile-high terraformer tower was spectacular, but the three individuals weren't there for the view. Welcome! It's great to see you all once again. I wish this meeting was a more casual occasion, but we have some very serious business to attend to. Bobby's booming voice reverberated throughout the room. Please have a seat and enjoy the champagne. There is much to discuss. The three sat down. None helped themselves to the champagne provided. Bobby didn't seem to mind and grabbed a full glass of champagne. He grabbed a remote and began projecting a scene of a panel labeled Dawn. As I'm sure many of you know... We've been involved in terraforming projects within the Tactile Republic for over 150 years. As I'm sure you also know, the Republic has recently taken an authoritarian communist turn. Several of our projects have been cut off from the sudden and violent regime change." His speech was interjected by William Tracker. It is a very unfortunate situation, however. Our profit margins have only increased from this change in power. This new state is very security-cautious, after all. What's in it for me? I'm glad you asked. There's As a token of good faith. I'm offering through all three companies a 5% snake and terraformer call. But mm-hmm. should you decide to cooperate? All three straightened in their chairs and leaned forward. Bobby let a beaming smile creep across his face. I knew that would get your attention. He continued to the next slide of his presentation. The new tactile state has multiple newly government-bought companies, each of which is a direct competitor to our efforts. Bobby paused to take a long drink of his champagne. We have the power to completely shut down these companies through sheer economic force, demanding the sale of said companies in order to restart the flow of resources and cash into their new state. Bobby changed the slide again. The Tactile Energy Cooperative, the main lifeline of the Tactile State. If you, Emily Slow, begin selling your energy and materials for 50% less, it'll completely tank their entire government supply of cash. Bobby downed his remaining champagne. They will then turn to you, Johnson Smith, for loans and monetary assistance to stay afloat. Should you deny them, you will force them into action. William interjected once again. Forcing them to declare war. This, uh, this might just work. Exactly, Bobby replied. When they start moving their fleets, recall their maintenance technicians, and stop sending new hardware, their entire fleet of ships will be rendered inoperable within weeks. And when all of this is said and done, Arshment, what then? You swoop in and buy out all of their banks. They'll be forced to sell off their assets in a desperate attempt to stay in power, said Bobby, coolly. You'll grow your markets to a populace of trillions. I'll do the same, Emily added. Their resource exports are massive, the potential profit from this venture. Bobby finished the sentence for her. "Are astronomical. He poured himself another glass of champagne. I'll have my terraforming ventures. You'll all have your new, friendlier markets to operate in. Lots of profit and a 5% share in terraformer. The three joined Bobby in a toast to the future and drank their glasses of champagne fully. It took only a matter of months for the tactile state to fully collapse. Their revenue stream was unexpectedly decimated by standard energy. When the Empire turned towards the Bank of Terror for a bailout, they were denied. War was the only option. Tactile ships began maneuvering towards standard energy assets, but their life support was pulled when Terran private defense bailed, taking all of their technicians and crewmen with them. The Tectal State was left with a crippled economy and worthless companies. In a final last ish attempt to make enough money to scrape by, they put their government industries up for sale. It came up as no surprise to the galaxy, when all of the companies were swooped up by the Terran companies that caused all the destruction in the first place. After selling their companies, the Tectal were at the mercy of the Terran conglomerates. Expectedly, they were completely shut off from the vital resources, the governments collapsed in a matter of days, replaced with a friendly state of pro-Terran politicians. The Terran conglomerate, as the four companies were now known, had pulled off the first hostile takeover of an entire solar empire in a process known today as paper warfare. End of story. Story number two. The First Fight, written by Rosie013. The Inky Oblivion slowly receded into mere nothingness, only to be replaced with an unknown, agonizing noise on the very edge of hearing. It screeched and tittered with the promise of understanding, but somehow remained elusive, preferring to taunt and flaunt from the safety of the unknown. It seemed to be everywhere and nowhere all at once, all around but from no particular direction. After an eternity, the slow, soft sensation of warmth grew into being. It came from nowhere, but somehow associated itself with Tao, a concept that meant nothing in the nothingness of existence. The warmth spread outwards from the center, slow and sensual, until all the eternities felt its caress. Its comforting embrace felt right, and all was as it should be. Suddenly, pure and raw thrust itself into the dark, brutally dispelling the peace. It slashed apart the nothingness with hard straight lines of amber yellow and pale red. Reality peeled away from the assault, desperately retreating down to the familiar comforting dark. The dark and warmth was welcoming and accommodating, but something had changed. In the dark, a new sensation had written itself into being. A sensation that defied definition. It was warmth, but coarse. It fought change and clung tightly to all that was, entrapping darkness and warmth against one another. Eventually, agony made itself known. Slowly, but insistent, permeating the darkness. It came in leaps and bounds, clustering randomly across space and time. Reality wreathed in desperation, shaking loose warmth and exposing itself to light in its bid for release. Agony skulked away into the dull throbbing, secretly pleased at being sated by the thrashing of all of existence. The thrashing has not gone unnoticed, however, and new sensations and feelings began to exist faster and faster, more than could be named in the time it took for them to be recognized. They came relentlessly, gaining pace until all began to blur into one, until suddenly they collided into a singular, perfect, unified moment. David awoke and climbed out of bed, taking the time to shut off his alarm clock. The first fight of his day had been won. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1855 All worlds are death worlds. Right? Written by Barsoom Israel. Instructor Sabalt was in charge of the largest group of multi-world children in the entire school. From all across the galaxy, students attended his classes and learned not just knowledge, but they learned of each other and different cultures. It was not until the addition of Julie, the first human child to attend the school, did Instructor Sabalt run into issues with his students befriending and accepting a newcomer. Judy, it seemed, was an enigma to the other students. The planet she hailed from, Earth, was surrounded in mystery and legend, being called a Death World and uninhabitable. Instructor Sebald felt that this stigma was why Judy ended up eating her lunch alone, in some dark secluded corner of the common area every day. He had seen on many occasions the young Earthling try to reach out and befriend the other students, but they were all too wary of the Earth child to ever reciprocate the effort. It was then that he decided to show the entire class how alike all of his students were, no matter what world they hailed from. Every world could be called a death world, and what planetary body did not have areas on it that were uninhabitable? When it was all put into perspective, Instructor Sir was confident that the mystery and threat of an unknown that surrounded Judy would disappear. And friendship would soon blossom. So, as he sat, looking over his class, he gave them a, the assignment. In three weeks from today, I will require a video presentation from each of you depicting your homeworld. Paying special attention to its stages both animal and geological, he said. Students that share a homeworld may work together on this presentation. But be aware that this would be a 40% of your final grade. So please put forth an effort worthy of the weight of the grade we carry. And so, Julie, who was the only earthling in the entire school, much less the class, toiled on her assignment, stressing the dangers and perils of her homeworld, as did all the other students. On presentation day, she would be the third student to give a report. She sat nervously, waiting but she was also very interested in the reports before her. What dangers lurked on these other worlds, she would soon find out. The first presentation was of a world called Bereth, and the three students that were from the planet went into great detail about how deadly and dangerous the fauna was. They provided a video of a smallish furry creature that walked on four legs and had a bushy tail. Watch what happens, one of the presenters said excitedly as the video depicted the small animal being presented with a piece of cloth dangling it in front of the creature. In response, the creature made a hissing sound and slashed at the cloth with a paw, and the students all saw some claws appear, seemingly out of nowhere, as the beast attacked. "'See that?' the presenter yelled, pointing at the video screen. "'Those razor-sharp talons were not there about a second ago. If that had been your arm, the beast would have cut the skin to the bone.' A smattering of applause and murmuring broke out in the classroom. The presenters all smiles and standing straight with pride returning to their seats. Only Julie seemed to not enjoy the presentation. In fact, she sat there with a look of confusion on her face. Noticing her furrowed brow, Instructor Sir Bolt asked her, Did you have a question, Julie? Still with a look of confusion, Julie replied, But instructor, wasn't that just a house cat? A small smattering of laughter broke out for the student. Instructor Sobolt, held up his hand for silence, but there was also a ghost of a smile on his face. No, Judy, that is a vicious beast. It would in no way be appropriate to have it in a household. Not if you valued your life, at least. Still looking confused, Judy just nodded and waited for the next presentation. As the second presentation began, the students giving it said, The beast you saw before may have been deadly, but nothing will terrify you as much as what we call death from the skies. They then launched into a great detail about how the scourge of their homeworld could descend on them from the heavens at any given time, rending flesh from bone and inciting terror into the populace when the shadow merely swept across the ground. It seemed all very dramatic, with music playing in the background, and then the video. Finally focusing in on the terror from above, a brightly colored flying creature that had a short, curved beak. Now claws are bad enough, the presenter said, but watch the strength of this creature's maw. In the video, the feathered creature grabbed a hard-covered seed and began to bite down on it with a loud crack that echoed through the classroom. The cover broke in half, revealing the soft seed inside which the creature began to eat. The class went wild. Did you see that? What if that had been a finger? Duh, thank the creator. We don't have those in our world. Judy stared dumbly at the screen. Finally, she waved her hand at the monitor and said rather loudly, But but that just looks like a parakeet. Silence fell on the classroom, murmurs of, She's just jealous, and how rude to be heard. Instructor Sebald was worried that this plan was backfiring. He had never known Julie to be anything less than pleasant, but her behavior today was borderline at best. "'Okay, Julie,' he said, a little sternly. "'Please come up and give us your presentation.' For some odd reason he could not fathom, Julie looked nervous and stayed in his seat. "'Instructor, I fear I may have misunderstood the assignment,' she said quietly. "'I was under the impression that we were to show the dangers of our planet, "'not so much the dangers of our pets.' Instructor Sebalch choked, ''Pets!'' he said loudly, ''That feathered merchant of death could never be a pet!'' Judy looked crushed, and under her breath she mumbled something. ''What did you just say?'' the instructor demanded. Immediately a student next to Judy said, ''She said my four-year-old cousin has a stupid parakeet, instructor!'' The instructor glared at Judy. ''You will now give your presentation, or I will contact your parental figures, and you will obtain a zero for the assignment!'' Slowly, with a great reluctance, Judy left her desk and walked to the front of the class. Every eye was on her, and all of them were not friendly. Julie knew that this was social suicide. No one talked to her now. They sure wouldn't after her presentation if they thought a parakeet was dangerous. Fine, if they wanted her presentation, they would get it. Feeling there was no way out of this, Julie began, "'My presentation is of the dangers we can face in my homeworld, called Earth.' "'On the video screen, a blue marble of a planet appeared, slowly rotating. "'In the north of my home continent, we are faced with animals that fear no creature,' "'she said slowly, as an image of a small squat beast appeared on the mountains. "'The scene changed to be a beautiful landscape, covered in white, "'when suddenly the creature burst up from the ground, "'sending white spray in all directions.' The entire class screamed at alarm, and Julie paused the video. The words, Wolverine, were frozen on the screen, superimposed over a snarling face of a vicious beast. What is that? One student asked, pointing a shaking hand at the monitor. It is a Wolverine, Julie replied glumly. They are nasty animal, that. No, the student interrupted. What is all that white stuff? Confused, Julie stared back at the screen. What? The snow? Snow, the alien copied. Snow. Snow. What is snow? Getting really confused, Judy replied. Snow is just rain that gets frozen before it hits the ground? A gasp of alarm escaped from the student. Your rain breezes in the air, like outside, not in the laboratory. Judy just looked at him and shrugged her shoulders. Yeah, for about 25 to 40 percent of the year. Uh, depending on where you are. Silence greeted her words. Anyway, she continued, unpausing the presentation. You can see the wolverine is so nasty, it is willing to attack predators much larger than itself. Here she showed a small wolverine snarling and advancing against a grizzly bear. What in the seven hells is that? A student screamed, pointing at the huge creature made of muscle and sinew on the screen. Pausing the presentation again, Judy looked at the screen, then back at the student. What? The bear? Those things are all over my homeworld. The student stammered, shaking in his seat. All, all, all over. How are you even alive? Judy laughed. <laughs> bears are bad, all right, but there are much worse, much, much worse things on earth than bears. You must be lying, a voice said. And it took a second for Judy to notice it was her instructor who had said it. He was sitting in his chair, shaking with fear. Smiling, Julie just fast-forwarded her presentation a little bit, to where warm, clear, calming water was all that could be seen. Seventy-one percent of my planet is covered in water, she said, and in that water are many creatures, like fish, crabs, seahorses, squid and the like. And as she tore, the pleasant pictures of each animal flashed on the screen. We even have what we call seals, she said. Looking at Dojet, an alien classmate that looked so much like an anthropomorphic seal, it was frightening. Dojet smiled widely as he watched the seals play and leap in the waters. We, uh, also have sharks, Judy said. And out of nowhere, a gigantic great white shark appeared on the screen, chasing down and biting into the seal flesh in a rush of red stained water. Fleshy chunks of bloody meat sinking into the depths where all that was left of the seal. Dojat sat with his mouth open. A silent scream on his lips. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Instructor Sabolt screamed. But, instructor, Judy said, I haven't told you about vampire bats. They rip open your flesh and drink your blood. Or crocodiles. Or lions. Or snakes. Scorpions. Spiders. Stop! Stop! Instructor Sabolt grasped, his hand clutched over his heart. Dojat stared in abject terror at Judy. Oh... How did your people even survive? he asked. Because, Judy replied calmly, blaring out over the terror-stricken faces of the white eyes of her fellow students, because the most deadly creatures from Earth are, uh, humans. And saying that, she headed for her seat. As she walked down the aisle, she could not help but notice that the other students shied away from her in fear. When lunch rolled around, Judy almost cried. She knew that her presentation ensured the rest of her school days would be spent with self-inflicted isolation. As she nibbled on a sandwich, her appetite long gone, a shadow fell over her. Looking up, she saw the seal-like Dojat standing over her. Judy looked up, sadly. You are awesome! Dojat said earnestly. Did you ever see a shark before, in real life? he asked, sitting down next to her. Shocked, but pleasantly so, Judy said... Yes, my uncle and I caught one while fishing once. It wasn't as big as the one in the presentation, though, she admitted. You caught one? Dojat said, impressed. Imagine catching a beast like that. Another shudder fell across her, with another student asking, Can you tell me about those vampire bat things? They sound scary. Another shadow, and another. Julie... All smiles tried to answer all the questions but there were way too many. When the lunch period ended, Julie was surrounded by admiring students as she walked back to class. Looking out the window, Instructor Sebald smiled. It may not have been entirely to plan, but it worked. He looked back at his work, trying to grade Judy's assignment. He tried watching more of her presentation while the students were at lunch, but gave up when seeing what a fish called a piranha did to a large bovine herbivore. He gave a short laugh. <laughs> if she survives that place, he said under his breath, she deserves a day. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1856 Out of the Madness, written by Lostfall. Yalto marched in horror as his expeditionary crew was torn apart by the monsters in the pod. This horror had to end. Moments before, Yalto had looked out into the void from the bridge of his ship at a new pod they had found. These pods were occurring with a frightening frequency that only seemed to be increasing. Containing them, and checking what kind of life they held, had been the prime directive for the Galactic Collective. All life in the universe started in these pods, but most of them contained monsters. His containment team, Team 1560 had held the line for almost fifty years. The situation had gotten worse over the last two hundred years. The monsters grew more sophisticated and terrible with each passing year, with fewer helpful races being found. His squadron had encountered another new pod of unknown design and origin. Years of dealing with these monsters had made them cautious. They had sent a boarding team of five over to evaluate his occupants. Initially. It appeared everything was quiet. That was until they reached the portion that looked like a cargo room. In the dark depth of that room, the team's raw car showed a flash, movement. Clicking sounds could be heard all over. Pull back! Yalto had immediately started shouting at the team, but it was too late. Small robotic-looking bugs seemed to stream from everywhere. His team tried to fight back but the feed streamed their last few moments before they too went dark. Yalto was gripping the edges of his seat with his taloned hands as he issued the order to his crew. Destroy it! These monsters actually appear to be consuming everything around them to make more of themselves. He grimly watches as the pod breaks apart, carefully monitoring to ensure none of the horrors survive. Everyone knew the pods came from the creator, he was always flinging his newest creations into space, just as he had done with Yalto's race, the Snake. They were a cold-blooded reptilian race with two arms, each ending in five talent hands. Generally, a typical Snake was five to six feet when moving or raised. They believed themselves to be one of the oldest races holding the line. Every race knew the story. In a flash, the first of their race found themselves looking in the face of a strange creature. This creature they knew as the creator. He appeared as though made of sand and constantly shifting. None had a clear description of what he looked like. But he was generally described as a mammalian creature with two arms and two legs. His eyes burned of light as he spoke the same to each race. "'You are unique.' You shall have your chance. He would then tell them who they were before he launched them from the blue orb of creation into space. In the last two hundred years, containment had gotten significantly harder. The creator continued launching more and more into the void each year, each more sophisticated and more dangerous than the last. Every so often, a monster so terrifying they couldn't even figure out how to kill it would show up. Standard practice was to destroy the pods, then try to use weaponry to drive the floating bodies into a planet they had deemed uninhabitable. Planets that met this fate were marked purgatory and were off-limits to prevent escape. Monsters such as the atmosphere blob that consumed all it touched often met such fates. Recently, a rather torn-up monster with two arms and two legs carrying a melee weapon and wearing a mask posed such a challenge. Both were driven onto nearby rocks and left with monitoring stations to try and ensure that they did not escape. All pods had to be checked. Allies to hold the line were sorely needed. But the chitinous Spitter and canine Lupus did their best. But even they struggled to hold it. It's amazing what a shared threat could do to help unite a galaxy. Many viewed the passing of the line as a trial of intelligence... If a race survived to escape from the horrors of the Cradle World, then they were ready to help defend their new universe. The Containment Forces were a coalition of all existing races. They served two purposes. They looked for friendly and intelligent races escaping to help them find worlds to settle on. And they tried to destroy or contain the nightmares that were too dangerous. None dare go back to the Cradle World. It was a home to monsters. Yalto could not pulp but wish he could ask the creator some very pointed questions. Why did something so powerful find entertainment in inflicting such horror upon them? With great sadness, Yalto records the loss of another of his boarding teams. Sadly, this is all too common of an occurrence. You did not risk bringing back a boarding team that had met hostiles without being sure of their condition. A couple years ago, he had encountered a parasitic life form that had cost his fleet a ship. It had embedded its eggs into a member of the boarding team. believing him wounded, they had brought him back on board. The monster killed him and escaped into the ship. As it began to hunt and kill crew, the remainder of the fleet had been forced to destroy the ship. The only glimpses of it they ever got was a black chitinous the shell. They had even been forced to destroy the escape pods for fear that the creature might make it to a habitable world. Yalto's fleet was one of hundreds encircling the Cradle World, all trying to ensure its horrors did not reach civilization. Sadly, his story and situation were far from unique. Bitterly, he thought to himself, This must end. Less than four hours later, the communicator erupts in chitters. Spider just encountered several pods at once. They were desperately calling for backup, fear of what they were to encounter evident in their voices. This is Yalto of the Snake. What is your situation? he called out. This is the Clack of the Spitter. These pods appear to be filled with extremely large reptiles. We are down to less than one expeditionary crew left. We need support. Yalto knew he couldn't abandon his sector. At the same time, the escape of any of those pods would render a planet uninhabitable and all of the creator's pods were headed to a livable world. It was a desperate fight of survival. Before containment had become a priority, one would have been lost to creatures made of fire and another to those of shadow. Those worlds were still occupied by those spirits, no longer habitable for the remainder of the galaxy. It was a large part the reason why they were here. He initiated a short burst communication to the home fleet, they must know of the situation. Mulka Ak could undoubtedly pop the pods without reinforcements. She would have to assume all were hostile. The loss of even one potential ally race would severely hurt their ability to hold the line. To his shock, quickly he received two short burst communications back. The first was confirmation of receipt and confirmation of reinforcements. The second from General A Na Konda, the Ak. Sm- that he was en route to Yalto’s location. This creature war had raged for as long as any could remember. General Konda had watched his brothers, sisters, and children lose their lives in it. Sadly, his situation was no different than any of the other living beings in the galaxy. This mad creator, continuously launching pods, most filled with horrors bent on destruction of life, into their galaxy. Something had to be done. The lines were starting to falter after the barrage of the last 200 years and the creatures were getting more and more lethal. It was with a heavy heart that General approached what must come next. The council met. Then it was decided that someone must approach the creator to try and get him to see reason. Stop him from unleashing his monsters upon the galaxy. But this mission, The general approached Yalto's small fleet. More ships were incoming to take its place on the line, and more fodder were en route to the Spudder as well. The boarding teams faced casualties that were truly horrifying. Over the centuries, this war had spanned and they had resorted to primarily using criminals for this duty. But even that wasn't enough. The current draft to fill them was all morale-crushing. The general would be lying if he said he did not fear his current objective. To face a god, the creator of all life, and ask him to cut it out. It sounded like a myth, not a mission. As General A. Narconda reached the fleet, he informed Yalto of his new mission. A young commander would take up his spot on the line. Yalto and four of his ships were to escort the general into the Forbidden Zone to meet the creator. Yalta could feel his blood freeze, even in the warmth of the artificial heat lights. Stories were told of the journey to the Creator's world. Of the horrors that were seen, also there were no ports of respite along the journey. During the mission, they were to also survey the worlds they passed until they met the Creator. This information they would continuously broadcast out to the galaxy to document what they find. With foreboding... They launch into their odyssey. The first system they entered, they could see signs of where crash pods had hit. One planet looked like nothing more than a perfectly smooth ball. On closer examination, they could see the surface moved in an unnatural way, like a blob of gelatin had encircled it. The planet was far smaller than it had been when they last surveyed. This was the purgatory world of the blob. As they traveled through the systems, almost every planet they saw bore some horror. From skeletal remains, monstrous beasts, living shadows, to even include dragons. Pods always targeted planets capable of sustaining life. The fact that they saw so many meant that these planets were no longer considered as such. They had even seen a planet encased in fire. Over it were thirteen rings, and each ring was filled with flickering lights that one could easily imagine to be tortured souls. Even from space, the giant red monster lording over this world was visible. He looked right at their ship when they turned the survey camera towards him. His smile was frightening. Along the way, hundreds more of the pods could be seen floating through space, carrying their lethal cargo. Finally, they reached the center of the madness home of the creator. As they entered his system, they saw the first planet, the planet of death with its purple hue. On it walked a spectre cloaked in black and its surface was littered with bones. None knew its story or wanted to go down to ask. Next came the planet of the seas. Its surface was a constant storm, roiding the methane seas that covered it. A golden trident shaped boat could be seen in the eye of the great storms below. With a scanner, it appeared that there was life below the surface. Only dark ships and movement could be seen. Trepidation grew significantly as they approached the world of the Skysnakes. Their own legend said they had come from this planet originally. While ruin covered the planet, nothing that resembled civilization remained. Its surface scorched and etched, much like the tree struck, by lightning as the next planet came into view they could see the rings some massive fight in its ancient history had killed the planet of the god of seeds the oldest of the titans like voyeurs in the playground of death and destruction they cruised on the next planet that they were warned to avoid even the ancient star chart said that it was home of the god of thunder they could see his red eye watching them as they approached Lightning flashed all over its surface. Never did they dream it could lash out so. Yalto watched in horror as two ships caught arcs from the planet. One plunged into the atmosphere of the planet, only visible due to the amount of electricity slamming into it. The other crashed into the nearby asteroids. Fifty men he had known for most of his life lost their lives that instant. There was nothing to do or say. They had to push on. Never had he nor the General said anything as they continued their approach towards the Blue Orb. They passed an angry red ball of the planet, the signs of active combat readily visible on its surface. From the way the lines ebbed and forwards and backwards, neither ever gaining a real advantage. It looks as though it could go for all time, a dance between perfectly balanced parties. Finally, they reached the blue orb. Take the shuttle down near those buildings, the general ordered, pointing to what appeared to be the ruins of a city in the northern part of one continent. There appeared to be a storm of some sort on the world as well, but it stayed away from the city. Landing near the edge of the city, they sent out their scout teams to try and understand the world of the creator. Very quickly, though, the scout teams came running back, begging Yalto and the General Anaconda to come and see the ghosts that walked this earth, the storm still visible in the distance, now clearly a sandstorm. These ghosts were not like the shades that they would seen prior. They were light, but completely unaware of them. The world surrounding them was ruined, but where the ghosts traveled, the buildings suddenly were completed. It was mesmerizing to watch. In a distant building, a faint light appeared to head up and from there they suddenly saw a pod shoot off. Immediately, the general and Yalto began running in that direction. Picking up his communicator, Yalto called back to his remaining ships, but got no response. Looking back, all he could see was the wall of sand. His ships and crew were gone. It was now just him and the general. Approaching the building with the light, the world seemed to be dimmer. The ghosts walked around them with equally unaware. On the side of the building was a sign of their people, also they assumed, the rod of Asclepius, long thought by his people to be a sign of their once great influence. Entering the building, they continued to follow the lightly glowing sand. Behind them, they could see the storm following, swallowing all they passed. Finally, on the second floor, they found the creator. He sent over the body of one of the ghosts, only this one appeared almost solid. It was a mammalian creature with ape-like beaches. The General and Yalto froze in that doorway, watching as the creator reached above it and grabbed something. A pod then grew in his hand and flew away, following the light. The creator then looked at them. Those glowing eyes and the ever-shifting face of sand were mesmerizing. He gave them what was an almost a sad smile. Time is coming to an end, my friends. I've done all I can to protect this young one. But he is passing. And with it, all he created in our world. But you are the creator, aren't you? The general began. The creator just shook his head. No, I'm the sad man. I protect the creator while he sleeps. What you see before you is a human. The latent psychic power of his unconscious mind creates all you see. Unfortunately, the seed of creation you are looking for is about to wake. How do you know this? Insisted Yalto in horror. They came to save the world, not hear about it all being destroyed. It can't end like this. Sandman answers. Because he is near his destination. He has been in cryostasis this whole time. All in our universe he had created. I've done all I can to keep him peaceful slumber. But the machines have already begun to wake him up. As his mind leaves this plane to return to the reality of his own. It'll take all that it created here with it. This universe ends with each trip, young ones. Sandman looked at the two would-be saviors and smiles. Suddenly, the realization sets in that the Sandman looks like a young man, the sandstorm getting closer. This is really the end. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1857 Fear not the mage who practiced 10,000 spells, but one spell 10,000 times. Written by Random Three X, December 28th, Year 15, Angel's Descent. So, young Alex, Well, I have accepted you as my apprentice, there are a few things we must go over, Slot said to the young man, following him in his personal estate's office. Of course, sir. I shall assist as best I can. First, I won't be teaching you much outside my general lectures at the academy. Alex looked stunned at this statement. May I ask why? Isn't a master meant to teach their apprentices? Normally, yes, my boy. I have taken a grand total of two apprentices prior to you. You aren't even the first human I have taken as one. That first one I did is the traditional way, all because Braxis wanted to fight some powerful mage. Sloth's disdain for one of the old Dark Lords was apparent in his tone. I found the process exhausting. Focusing on so much of my research time and energy on one student is... Bleh, wasteful. It is why I teach large classes. Get my lessons into as many minds with as little effort. May I ask why I take on an apprentice in the first place, then? Alex asked, confused why he was there. You, boy, like your fellow apprentice, Yukiko Ironforge, are both exceptional enough that I have nothing to teach you. I took you both on to give you what you don't have. Sloth glanced at Alex before exhaling a deep sigh. (sighs) Resources, money, and so on. You both have so much potential. I want you to become giants whom others must stand upon to see further. I don't want you to climb my shoulders and be slothful. Sloth couldn't help but smirk at his joke. Regardless, I shall only give cursory guidance. You will mostly have free reign to do whatever you so choose. Just don't go too crazy. Nannix readily nodded. Second... You will be learning noble etiquette from my butler. Samson is a good man who will only break one of your knuckles for an egregious break in decorum. Sadly, this one is a must, as you are still too, uh, low-born in behavior. Though, I will say, you are by far the most well-spoken peasant that I have ever met. Third, I wish to know the story of how you learned magic. I already know you are somehow self-taught but such a thing is well unrecorded. Maddox nodded, then coughed to clear his throat. I was only a boy of six when I burst magic. My father was our village's apothecary. As his only son, I was raised to inherit his job when I grew older. So I was one of the handful of people actually literate in my village. Sloth nodded as he scribbled out notes. One day, when I was helping out in the healing hut, as we called it, a mage was brought in. He was horribly injured, limbs barely hanging onto him. It was clearly a monster attack of some kind. Sloth nodded, seeing where this may be going. Dad tried everything he could, but there was nothing we could do other than give him herbs to ease his passing. Naturally, the mage did die, but as he had a little coin by law, his possessions became our property. Did you ever get the name of the mage? Sloth asked. Unfortunately, no. His adventurous tag was chewed to hull, and was indecipherable. Apologies, uh, keep going. Yes, sir. So, uh, we looked through his possessions. There was nothing too fantastical. A few bronze coins, and a book that was shredded in the attack that had injured him. Only a single page survived, with a few fragments here and there. Yes, I've seen the bundle of pages you somehow believe to be a grimoire. I assume this page was the first of that bundle. Malek nodded in response. Yes, I read the page. It was a spell named Shape Earth. They described step by step how to cast the spell. That mage must have been a a novice then, if they still needed their grimoire with those steps in it. That, or they were broke. So, uh, being a six-year-old with a danger sense of a blind deaf man walking into a dragon's cave, I began to practice. Good thing you were older and wiser than back then, Sloth said with a chuckle. Obviously, at first, nothing happened, but I kept at it. I started to feel the energy in the book's few surviving scraps described as manner. Sloth seemed genuinely shocked at this revelation. You learned to detect mana without an external impetus, Annex just nodded. Fascinating. It isn't unheard of, but it is certainly rare. Then again, a self-taught mage is rarer still. Finally, I succeeded. I actually shaped the earth. Alex's face shone with a nostalgic smile. It was only a tiny bump. Somehow, even my younger sister could have made the one scoop of her hand. But it was proof that I was on the right path. I was so pleased, I really could then call myself a mage. Sloth snorted, but quickly restrained his love as he let Alex continue. So, I kept at it. I quickly realized how I said each line of the spell would alter the outcome. Being the type of child that would break his toys to see how they worked, I decided that I would just do the same with the spell. So, even at such a young age, you recognize the variance with diction. I am happier by the moment now I've secured you. Sloth gave a roll of his hand to indicate Alex to continue. So a year went by. The bump became a slightly larger bump, then a mound, and then I could plow an entire row in my family's field with the spell. Sloth, once again, had a shocked expression. I can only wonder how many times you repeated that same spell over and over. Between the first time and uh, when I left home for good, Alex tapped his and in thought. Roughly, uh, uh, uh 13,000 times. And you didn't manner out, Sloth exclaimed. His brows rising higher than Alex imagined was natural. Oh. I did many times. It is part of the reason why I have such a fine control of my manner. I learned to recognize when I was nearing the point I'd pass out and stop. But annoyingly, I had reached the limit with the chart. I realized I was missing something. There was something that was just beyond my view that I couldn't put my finger on. Like uh, an actual spell book? Alex just scowled at the bad joke. So, did you find a solution? Yes, actually. It was after many weeks of pondering that I finally got my answer. The village had its harvest festival. I wasn't a big fan of the event, but I attended nonetheless. It was there, bored out of my mind, I tried to spell once more. And you know what? What? It was much more powerful than before. Now I have a mind that loves puzzles. Give me something to work out and I will whittle it down till I have my answer. So I tried to work out what had changed. Was it the festival... Maybe the gods bless my magic. Psst! Sloth once again had to retrain a laugh, to which Alex gave an unrestrained glare. Sorry, but the gods have better things to do than interact with magic. You say that, but tell me, what does Gaia like? Sloth pondered Alex's question for a moment before answering. The scriptures say music. Alex nodded at Sloth. Yes, I came to that conclusion as well. So come the next day, I chanted the spell in a sing-song way. And what happened? Sloth was leaning over his desk, his pen at the ready at the promise of an interesting research results. Several fields got ploughed with the same mana cost as one spell. Alex didn't even bother to restrain his smug grin, as Sloth hastily noted down these new possibilities. So what happened after that? You no doubt would have become famous for such power, if anything, it is a wonder I did not hear of you sooner. Alex's expression darkened. When I was eight, word got out about a strangely powerful young mage in their village. Wood, they'd reached the church and its inquisitorial forces. Sloth's enjoyment of the conversation vanished and was replaced by a look of sympathy. Their punitive forces arrived when me and my older sister were off poaching in the Lord's Wood. By the time we returned, we found a charred ruin with the villages all hung. Sloth paled at the spot, realizing the boy before him lost so much at a mere age of eight. Knowing that it was the church, me and Mimi fled north to the dark continent. There we became adventurers, and the rest you probably know. Sloth nodded and gently put his pen down. And your sister, where is she now? She got scouted by the army. I think she's a colonel now. Sloth had to suppress a fresh wave of surprise. If his sister was that high rank, she must also be exceptional. The uh, final part is this. Sloth reached out, unlocked a drawer in his desk, and removed a book wrapped in silk cloth. This here is the Ogma Infinum, A book stole, <coughs> <coughs> borrowed out of the Akashic records by yours, Trudy. It is a book containing every spell currently in existence. But if a new spell is invented, Alex asked. His eyes are already gleaming. It'll appear with the name of its creator. I want you to read as much of this as you can, Star said, handing the bundle to Alex. Um, sir, isn't this priceless? Alex couldn't believe that he was being loaned such an item. Boy, the book has a mind of its own. It'll read your soul and only show you as much as it believes you can handle. Some assistants and majors who have held it have only been able to read a couple of pages. I'm curious how much you can read. What's the record? Alex asked, finally accepting the book. Roughly 60%, which was set by me. Easy then, I just need to be able to read more than that. Alex grinned at his new master. Oh, cheeky bat! Sloth returned the grin of his own. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1858 Story number one. Against the Odds, written by a glass of whiskey. The Athniks attacked. We had the south and they had the north part of the hemisphere as this godforsaken rock. Apparently, they were not happy with this arrangement and had carefully weighed the pros and cons of the ten times larger garrison before deciding to move in and take our largest port. Our one and only hope was the alliance of the humans. A full army or perhaps a special squad of supermarines had been requested and the humans had responded they had sent one man he looked as if he was about to collapse at any moment and as old as time so right i am assuming command his voice hit like a sledgehammer the man must be all lungs judging by his voice move out immediately we are going to attack the enemy ah the human had sent a commander he thought to himself and he started to prepare for moving out His body continued with the preparations as his thoughts tried to catch up to it. Attack the enemy, are we? Outnumbered 10 to 1. Just going to drive out and say hi to the fortified enemy position. His brain had mixed feelings about this. His body had strong feelings about this. It felt that whatever happened, it did not want to get screamed in the face by the new commander. And carried on with its tasks. The sheer chalk of the command seemed to have had a similar effect. On everyone else as they were now mostly ready except for the supplies that it always took a bit longer them! he heard the new commander shout we will just use the enemy supplies instead ah thought to himself going to attack the enemy that outnumbers us and is fortified but now without such things as extra bullets or food wonderful there were not a well-equipped garrison Transport vehicles, but not much else, drove out to begin the journey. Snow was beginning to fall and glimmered in the morning light. It was quite far to the port, and even at full speed would take almost a day. He wondered what the plan was. Sneaking in and attacking at dawn, perhaps. Or more likely, the commander had some secret weapon he hadn't shown. Some new death beam. He thoughts continued in the fashion for most of the journey except for the occasional breaks to refuel the vehicles, with what little fuel they had without the extra supplies. As they started to get closer, his thoughts became more and more imaginative. He had just embarked on this idea of a stealth super dreadnought descending from orbit and blasting the apnex into bits, and they were there just to witness and didn't need to do anything. When he started to hear orders getting out, there couldn't be much gas left. One of them must have run out, he thought to himself. The earlier life snowfall had developed into a full-on snowstorm. Blistering wind and snow kept visibility to a minimum. Yet, he could hear the commander shout orders, Right! Dismount! We're continuing on foot! Of course they were. Just what he had hoped for. As they pulsed through the now thick snow against the wind, his fantastical thoughts started to fall to bits. And he wondered more and more, if he was just walking to his death, what was actually the plan? They continued on, although no word of a plan reached his ears. Even as they now must be getting very close to the Acnex, what would happen? Some other people were also deep in thought. The Atnik scouts had found that the entire enemy force had moved dangerously close, apparently to attack them. Close scrutiny had showed that they had not received seemingly any reinforcements from the humans. General alarm was set, and men filled the trenches preparing for an unlikely attack. While confused, commanders desperately tried to make sense of it all. For the young officer on the other side, things were no less confusing. The enemy had discovered them. No more sneak attack if that was ever the plan. The human commander just looked into the snow-filled wind with a strange face and bellowed out an order. Right, prepare for attack. He could only just look at him in stunned disbelief. This was the plan, was it? For once, his head won over his body and his lips moved to speak his words. Commander, commander, he shouted to get his attention. Yes, what is it? Uh, This can't be right. Are we just supposed to charge them straight on? That's correct. Well, um, but, huh? So we're going to charge them, are we? During a snowstorm, and an enemy that outnumber us ten to one is dug in and fortified, and that knows where we are here. Oh, also, we are without vehicles, extra ammunition and food. Don't worry! Oh, good. He had some kind of top-secret plan, perhaps some hidden tech, that hidden dread. They got all the vehicles, ammunition and food we need, he said, and pointed in the direction of the enemy held port. At this, he turned around and continued to watch the snow-filled wind with interest. Right, desertion it is then. He just had to walk through the blizzard to the vehicles without gas, then continue to walk all the way to base. That took almost a day at full speed with vehicles. Without food. Right. Perhaps the commander had a point with what the port had everything they needed. A shame, really, that it also happened to be where the enemy troops were. But how... How are we going to be able to see who is a friend and who is an enemy? He was grasping at straws here. But when all you have is straws, you make a straw man. Oh, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Another don't worry answer. When there seemingly was so much to be worried about. Remember, they outnumber us ten to one. So odds of it being an enemy is about ten to eleven. At this, the commander smiled at his own unfunny joke. Enough of the chit-chat. The preparations are ready. He could see the chest build up like a balloon as the commander prepared to shout with every violence speaking George, and that that the commander disappeared forward into the snow. Well, here goes nothing. He could see expressions similar to his own throats on the men running forth closest to him. Thankfully, the wind had turned so the snow didn't blow directly into his face. At the very moment, he thought, here it comes, the explosions, dying, but nothing happened. They continued forward until they could literally see the enemy trenches, despite the dwindling light and snow. As they opened fire at close point blank range and rushed into the trenches, he could only see confusion and shock and how his now dead enemy eyes. Trench after trench was taken in the same fashion as the first. Stunned soldiers who had most managed to shoot a bit into the blinding blizzard before being overwhelmed. It wasn't long before they were at the port itself and had apparently been taken already when he arrived there. Prisoners of war had been herded into the corner of the large hangar bay and the old human commander stood on a box in the middle. It looked like almost everyone was here. Their losses must have been minimal. And that is how you dance the tango! The commander smiled at his own unfunny joke. But this time, he smiled with him. He was alive. They'd taken the port against all odds. Nothing could stop them now. End of story. Story number two. It's in the name, written by Hidden Fox. The sound of whirring motors and hissing pneumatics could barely be heard over the roar of the engines. Then suddenly, silence. The dropship roared out of the ship into dead silence of space. All right, you've all heard the brief. Remember, this is a Class 8 genocidal movement of the xenophobic superiority class. We cannot, said We don't have that option. Jack Corey surveyed his troops. The six-pointed star under the Corps banner stood out in the stark light of the dropship. Jack Staven was met with a grim acceptance. The soldiers in the dropship all knew the dangers of the Corps when they signed up, but they knew why. The stereotype of the Core being mainly human would be both right and wrong. Historically, the Core was made up of almost only humans. Of course, that was when no one really knew about the Core. Awareness of the Core grew after their response to an attempted coup that threw an entire planet into civil war. Taking down the rebels, addressing the major issues and repairing the majority of the planet's infrastructure before leaving put the Core on the radar. But stopping a terrorist attack on the capital station of Kahar, that skyrocketed them to galaxy-wide fame when it was broadcast live. Nowadays, non-human species were plentiful among the Core. Humans were still a large part of the Core, but that was mainly due to the long history with it. To list the sentient species that had members in the Core would take a long time. In fact, it would be easier to write a list of every sentient species that didn't have a member and that would be a waste of paper, because the list would be empty. Every sentient species had members in the core, and even a few non-sentient species were a part of the core. The dropship breached the upper atmosphere of the target planet. Screaming through the thickening atmosphere, hundreds of dropships swallowed. Strapped in, Jack made sure his soldiers were too. From the pack hunters of the Fenishi to the plant-like Romo. They were all had grim determination on their faces or face analogues. The dropship bucked and twisted as it maneuvered to avoid incoming anti-air ordnance. It deployed flares and countermeasures after. The ground attack fighters rushed past, charging with impulsive determination to destroy their targets. They loosed missile after missile, firing molten plasma from their nose-mounted weapons. Orbital bombardment streaked through the air at the edges of the formation, precisely destroying important assets. The dropship began to pull up, the force being inserted on the crew inside. It soared the last few kilometers to the dropship. The soldiers inside began to unstrap themselves from the ship. As they primed their weapons, flicking off the safeties, the dropship began to slow. The rear door slid open, hovering a few feet above the ground. The soldiers could see countless other dropships doing the same. Jack was the first to jump out. The first galactic peacekeeping called Boots hit the ground, ready to do their duty. After all, it's in the name. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1859 Story number one. They counsel me, they understand. Written by Echoing Cascade, Captain Sullivan was watching a movie with the call and Delegation. And as the credits began to roll, he dreaded the inevitable deluge of questions that would follow. If I get my hands on the numbskull who perfect memento of all things to show the aliens, going to kill him slowly. Selene, of the floating clouds, approached the human captain, head tilted and right index finger under her blue head. I wonder what she's going to ask first about the fact the movie is shown out of order. The fact that the main character can't retain information. How he tells his own story without knowing it's about him. Silly. Why did no one try to exercise the man with the deficient memory? Okay. What the hell? Captain Solomon raised a hand and opened his mouth, just to close it right away. Words fading him. Solomon. Uh I'm sorry, but uh, what? The man kept hearing the demon's voice in his head when trying to figure things out. The captain's confusion increased. What is she talking about? Wait, she couldn't mean... Do you mean his inner monologue when he heard his own voice in his head? Celine nodded. The captain relaxed. Oh, that's normal. That's just the voice you hear in your head when thinking. Celine looked rather worried and took a few steps away from the captain. Do you have such a voice in your head? Yes. Celine lifted her hand and her bodyguards grabbed the captain by the arms. I have the rituals for exorcism. We will require half of one of your hours and an empty room. The crew watching the scene went from snickering at the discomfort of the captain to getting ready for a fight. The captain tried to defuse the strange situation. What does this exorcism entail? a series of chants followed by a hymn that must be performed live. The captain gave his crew a look that screamed, I'll be fine, let's humor them, and the crew sat down, still worried, but they had their orders. Half an hour later, the captain left the cargo room and had been hastily repurposed by the colon for the impromptu exorcism. Annie, the captain's second-in-command, was waiting outside the room, and when the door opened, what she saw worried her. Captain Solomon walked out in a daze. His eyes unfocused. What the hell happened to him? What did you do? She moved to grab Celine, but the captain snapped out of the fast enough to stop her. It's okay. I'm okay, or I will be. I I think, maybe. Sir, what happened? Are you sure you're okay? I I, I can't hear it anymore. Here, once, sir. She had an idea of what he meant. But she couldn't bring herself to say it out loud. The, the voice in my head. When I think now, it's like a series of slides or scrolling text in my head. It's strange, but it feels right, you know. Ambassador Selene, is he all right? Selene thought it solidly. We excised the demon that had been subtly twisting his thoughts. Annie looked at her captain, who was looking more and more like his old self with every passing second. Salik continued, These antisees are parasites that enjoy inflicting pain, real or imagined, on sentient beings. The ritual to erase them is well known to our people. Hearing voices in your head, especially your own, is a clear sign of possession. And his mind was a mess. Nothing she had heard in the last few minutes made any sort of sense. It's Bias. She's obviously lying. Kill her. She pushed the thought aside with some effort and spoke. But all humans have an inner monologue. Celine looked shocked and her bodyguards moved between her and Annie. Annie stepped back, her mind racing. This can't be right. She messed with the captain's mind. She's trying to mess with mine. I have to kill them now. Annie shook her head. Are you saying that our entire species is possessed? I'm afraid so, yes. Annie looked at the captain, who shrugged and looked at her with a yeah, seems like it, at which point the human race was as a whole heard the same thing. Crap! They found out! Pagot! We all know what to do! The rituals to rid humanity of their demons took years to complete. Reaching all individuals was an arduous task, but the Kurlon were more than happy to help, and those who'd been freed joined them after noticing their mental health greatly improving. But the biggest hurdle was what was heard in the mind of all humans still possessed. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you, never gonna make you cry, never gonna say goodbye, Never gonna tell a lie and hurt you. Over and over again. Until freed from their demons. End of story. Story number two. I'd rather die. Written by Tyler of Tall Tales. I'd rather die than do nothing to help. A single statement as he disappeared into the sprinting, screaming crowd. My heart shattered into a million pieces when they wheeled his burnt and bloodied body from the building on a stretcher. Have you ever been in love? No. Not the kind that makes you feel incense in your stomach. The kind that sends lightning through your bones and makes your heart beat like thunder. I was once the a stupid human. A beautiful, brave, stupid human. I could never forget him. Couldn't forget the way his platinum white hair flowed in the strong breeze, His eyes so full of that manic spark that made him love everyone so much more than he loved himself. You always think that you're safe when you're at a shopping center. There's security everywhere you look. A menagerie of different species all milling around in a soft piece. All it takes to disturb that is a single blaster shot. I didn't know what that was at first, but when I saw the look on James's face, I realized. James ran with me until we got outside the center. Then amongst the Russian crowd, he stopped. He turned, holding both my hands and looking softly into my eyes. I have to go back. i have going to stop them before they hurt any more people. I almost screamed, my refusal. You're going to get yourself killed. Someone else will. There was a look in his eyes. One I only saw when he had those awful nightmares that made him wake up screaming and tearing at the sheets. He leaned in gently and pressed his lips on the tip of my beak, drawing me in for a hug as he whispered into my ear, I'd rather die than do nothing to help. Then, like that, he let go of me and disappeared against the flow of the crowd, fought against the flow, trying to follow him. But eventually, I let myself be carried away. By the rest, now, as I watch the news, they praise him as a hero. The footage from inside the mall played on loop—a full minute of heroism. I couldn't peel my blotchy eyes away as I sat on the couch in our home, his jacket around my shoulders like a ghostly hug. James burst into view in the main atrium. A dozen beings bound and held captive by four towering, masked-cloaked figures. There was a broken mop handle in his hands. The jagged, broken end leveled at the closest masked figure's chest. He ran the being through with a yell, catching them by surprise. He wrenched the mop handle free, greenish viscera coating the jagged tip. The surprise didn't last long as the other three attacked him, two with the threatening-looking jagged blades, The third raised their laser rifle a few paces from James. Face, a death mask of calm, James took a bright blue bolt of light to the chest, flesh searing as he stabbed one of his blade-wielding assailants through the neck, kicking the other back as he struggled to free the makeshift spear. The blaster bolt seared across his face, making him fall to his knees, clutching his burnt face. His knife-wielding assailant lunged on top of him, driving the blade deep between his ribs. James cried out in pain, hands scrabbling for something on the ground as his knife-wielding assailant pulled the knife out, aiming for another stab. James's hand swept up, jagged knife in hand. He drove it into the assailant's neck. Purple blood splattered his face as he kicked them away. Standing, he took a searing ball to the knee and stumbled. He fell to one knee, as his masked assailant stepped forward, pressing the muzzle of the laser rifle against James's face. A flash of rage crossed the unburned half of the face, and he lunged, grabbing and ripping the rifle from the masked being's hands, before swinging it like a club and striking the last masked being over the head. The last assailant crumbled. James looked around, at the hostages, who stared at him like a monster. Tumbling to the nearest one, he cut the bonds holding their hands before passing them the jagged knife. He stumbled, then he fell, tumbling onto his side. His eyes staring unseeingly as the freed hostage began freeing the others. I laid down and rolled over as the footage looped again. I couldn't watch him die anymore. I pulled his jacket tighter around me and for a moment I could feel his warmth arms around my shoulders again. Hear him telling me it'll be alright. That he'd rather die than let anyone hurt me or some innocent bystander. It only made my broken heart crack a little more knowing how much he meant by it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1860 Tour de Dano, written by Old Phil. Major Henry looked at his terrified crew on the Dano and told them all quite forcibly to be quiet as he made what he hoped wouldn't be his final transmission. NASA Control, repeating situation, this is the Dano. A small asteroid has damaged the ship. We are venting atmosphere and have less than half an hour of oxygen remaining. This transmission will not reach you until we are dead. The crew and I have decided to attempt to use the engine from the experimental FTL probe to try and warp back to Earth. Engineer Yates believes there is a chance the probe's engine can get the ship close enough that the ISS could reach us in time to effect a spacewalk rescue. If the warp attempt is successful, we will be radioing the ISS directly soon, before this transmission reaches you. On behalf of the crew, please tell our families that we love Engaging warp probe engine in one minute. Ending transmission. Henry turned to the scared crew and nodded. All right, let's go home. Fire up the engine, Yates. The engineer's eyes looked wild and scared as he finished the last check on the calculations work and hit the button to fire up the FTL engine. It hadn't ever been tested properly. This mission's whole purpose was to fly out of Earth's gravitational influence and see if NASA's theoretical FTL engine could warp the released probe to Mars in what should be effectively instantaneous travel. The engine spun up, and the crew double-checked their suits, prepared for the rescue. The countdown hit zero, and the crew braced. There was a flash, and then a moment of dark. Captain, we are ready to begin the next attempt, the young scientist stated. The captain, bored of the constant failures and not expecting much difference this time, grunted his acknowledgement as the young scientist engaged a program to project the space-time distortion. There was a bright flash off the bow of the large research vessel, and there it was, the Dan, in one piece, still wildly venting atmosphere. They stared at the ship now floating beside the vessel in shock. Then everyone stood up at once and started cheering. Captain! We got them! Scans show they are alive! The captain shut his mouth slowly, awestruck by the momentous occasion, and recovered his composure. Get that ship to the bay now! We have guests to greet! Medical and security teams, you're with me! The captain rushed from the bridge towards the docking bay with the wake of far more people than invited following him. As a tractor beam brought the Danu safely aboard the large vessel. Their vision and hearing came back as their heads swam. Major Henry looked around at his crew and the perplexed engineers staring out the window. Status, Yates! Can you see the ISS? Where are we? Did it work? Yates never took his eyes off the portal, the window to space. As he slowly said, Uh, I don't don't think we're anywhere near the ISS, sir. Or, Or Earth. What do you mean, Yates? What are you talking about? Major Henry unbuckled and glided over to the window beside the mirror. As the Major looked out the window, his jaw dropped too. Yates put his hands on Henry's shoulders and said, Three things I notice. The two big-ass stars over there lead me to believe that we are in another star system, and I'm pretty sure that that big-ass alien ship over there doesn't usually hang around Earth either. The whole crew rushed to look at the massive ship, clearly alien, a dull blue beam extended from the giant vessel and started dragging their ship, the Danu, towards them. A large hangar door opened on the side of the ship, as the Danu's crew could only watch, completely paw-struck Their ship was pulled into the hangar and slowly, gravity was felt by the crew as they set their now-weighted feet on the ground for the first time in months. Sir, I have a few more reasons to believe that we aren't anywhere near Earth. Yates pointed out another portal, where the Major saw a good twenty alien beings approaching Danu. Crew, I know you are scared, Hal. I'm terrified. But get on your game faces. We're about to make first contact with alien life. Let's make humanity proud. Henry opened the hatch and got a good look at the odd beings. They were surprisingly human-like, but certainly alien, with extra-large eyes, ears, and head. Their limbs were longer and stronger-looking a little out of proportion, but they were all smiling in a very friendly way. Henry waved and slid out of the hatch, hoping that they were indeed friendly. The hatch to the Danu opened as the captain and his crew waited anxiously to greet the humans. The first human looked out, smiled, waved, and slid through the hatch to stand on the deck of the bay, and spoke, Hello! We are humans from the planet Earth! "'We are explorers seeking only peace and knowledge.' The crew behind him exploded in cheers and shouts as the captain smiled at his crew and waved them to silence. "'You must be Major Henry. I am Captain Jacobson, commander of the science vessel Arcades. Do any of your crew require medical attention?' Major Henry shook his head. "'We are most excited to have you and your crew safely on board. Welcome back to space-time. You must have many questions.' Let's go to the conference room. We have a lot to talk about. The crew behind the captain cheered, shaking hands and hugging, stepping forward to greet the humans with excited handshakes. Everyone, Captain Jacobson shouted, please let our honored guests through. If you will follow me, please, crew of the Danu. The captain walked out the bay into a hallway with the Danu's crew scrambling behind, asking questions excitedly. The alien captain led the Danu's crew into a small conference room and invited everyone to sit down. Now, Captain, what is going on? Where are we? Can you help us get home? How do you speak perfect English? Major Henry asked without preamble. We were going to launch an experimental warp travel probe and... and had you used the probe's engine to try and save yourselves, yes. We are quite aware. We've been trying to rescue you for a long time, Major. A... Very long time, the alien captain took a deep breath and let out as a sad-sounding sigh. (sighs) Your story is very well known, and I am afraid I must deliver you some news that you will find shocking. Your attempt to use the probe's engine to quickly return to Earth was not exactly successful, obviously. The probe's engine did successfully pull you out of a three-dimensional space, but your science's limited understanding of interdimensional travel meant that you were pulled out of time as well, with no way to return to it. The captain looked truly sad as he spoke to the crew of the Dan. You stopped existing in what you understand as space-time. You were lost. You were lost for a very long time, I'm afraid. The Dan's crew all looked at each other in shock. What are you saying, captain? You were the first humans to leave the three spatial dimensions. Getting you back was thought impossible... And you were lost for all that time. We've never stopped trying, though, Major. I'm afraid you and your crew have been lost to time and space for 10,000 Earth years. Hold on. Are you telling us that everything we know, everyone we know, are... Gone. Yes. My most sincere condolences and apologies. The technology to rescue you just simply didn't exist until now. We're all still quite surprised that it even worked, rescuing you. The alien captain waited in silence while the Danu's crew processed this. There was a long silence, lots of tears, and the Danu's crew realized their friends and family. Everything they knew died many millennia ago. The silence was broken by the Major. Who are you, aliens? Friend to us humans, are you taking us to them? The alien captain looked sadly again as the Danu's crew. There haven't been any of what you'd call humans for nearly 8,000 years, Major, your race died out. You are the only humans in the universe, and you are our race's ancestors. 9,000 years ago, humans began to edit their DNA as they expanded into the universe. Now, After the invention of the interdimensional drive, your ship helped to pioneer. They edited their DNA to force evolve themselves to survive on the planets and moons they colonize and those colonizers ceased to be compatible with human DNA after only a few dozen generations. The subhuman races that now populate the universe are not even compatible with each other. We are as alien to each other as we are to you. We've never met any life form that didn't originate from Earth yet, but space is a very large place. My people and everyone on the ship live on our home planet Earth, And we are the closest to still being human-like. Even the humans on Earth chose to edit DNA to evolve. We made ourselves smarter, faster, stronger. Eventually, the original human race of Homo sapiens simply ceased to exist anymore. And I'm afraid, due to our terraforming, Earth is no longer very habitable to your kind. So, there's very really no much reason to go back there. You wouldn't recognize it anyway. The Danner's crew sat in silence a few minutes before Henry said, Can can you give me and my crew a few moments, alone? The not-so-alien after all, Captain nodded, and paused at the door before leaving to say, If you need anything, just call out. Know that you are heroes of legend to us, the pioneers of interdimensional travel. All this is thanks to you. You will be very welcome in the universal community. We also have many questions for you about ancient Earth. Crew, look, our mission failed. We have nothing and no one to go back to. We can probably live out their own lives in the vessels like this. Do the talk show circuits or whatever if they still have those. The crew all just stared at the hands as Henry spoke. This this, this is all my fault. I'm so sorry. Yates started crying. If I hadn't done the stupid fecking idea and it all up, uh, me, my wife, uh, everyone... Major Henry stood up, angrily. You saved the lives of me and my crew, Yates. Don't you dare say anything like that again. You're a goddamn fecking hero in my book. Look, our mission is gone. But since I guess we're completely in charge of NASA now, being the last ones left, we can just make our own damn secondary mission. There's nothing holding us here. I say we keep exploring. Captain Jacobson. Brought the chief engineer with him, heard the request of the human crew, back into the conference room and greeted the humans with a smile. The world is out that your crew have been rescued. The entire universe is excited to see and meet real humans and the heroes of... The Major cut him off. We need you to help us fix our ship. We want to go back. Major, I understand your crew is upset, but you can't go back. Time is not something you can travel... You can only step outside of relative time for a while to effectively go forward. I know that, Captain, of course. When I was a kid, I knew that going from one place to another faster than light was impossible, too. And yes, we do want to go back to our time. By I mean that we want to go back to where we were, frozen out of space and time. Say, for another ten thousand years. Your descendants can get us back out again then, or whenever time travel is possible. ''My crew and I have decided unanimously. We apparently pioneered interdimensional travel. Why shouldn't we pioneer time travel as well?'' Major Henry stood up, and his crew stood up with him. ''Our home is just isn't here, Captain. Maybe it's ten thousand years from now, and we'll just end up settling there if time travel is indeed impossible. Maybe. Or maybe we'll just keep going forward just to be the ones to do it. Just to see what becomes of the universe.'' The captain stood up as well and turned to his engineer with a nod. Please give our friends any assistance they need. Back in space. Sir, the nano is ready. The program is locked in. The probe's engine is ready to fire. Waiting on your command. Yates and the rest of the crew sat expectantly looking towards Major Henry. Major Henry buckled himself into the command chair and addressed his crew. To go where no one has come before. I always love that line from the show's over. But space is no longer the final frontier so let's see what the future holds yates engage the bright flash of light echoed in their redness as the crew shook off the feeling of vertigo they had lost count of the number of times that they'd leapt forward in time and been rescued time and time again by increasingly strange seeming aliens but this time was different there was no ship outside waiting for them A glowing ball of light floated just outside of the Danu, pulsing, as it spoke, directly into their minds. Welcome back to space-time, crew of the Danu. You've been gone a very long time. We understand you would like to go home. Well, that is impossible if you're brave enough to face the risks of some rather experimental technology involving the multiverse and infinite possibilities. We believe we can help. Epilogue. The crew on the ISS were hard at work conducting experiments when there was a bright flash of light out of the starboard side. The commander looked out of the portal and grabbed the radio just as a familiar voice came over it, asking what year it was. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1861 Story number one. The nuance of language written by Hicks Kem. Terence Crawford stood at the center of the chamber. All around him, representatives of the many races of the Galactic Federation gazed down upon him. Taking a deep breath, he turned his eyes towards the Sultari contingent. He spoke slowly and deliberately, speaking Sultari. The Sultari Contingent attacked a civilian mining colony on Atrax multiple times, ignoring their pleas for peace. That colony was to extract ores that could be refined into stronger, lighter metals to improve space travel for all races. We would have shared it willingly, had you been peaceful. We will accept your complete surrender as a recompense for those lives lost. He concluded with a sharp gasp having correctly spoken the language without taking breath. The solitary sneered down. No paltry hand for the people. The loss was acceptable to old parties. Crawford lowered his eyes for a moment and muttered, Pity. He turned to the Quali delegates. Their language was, by human standards, truly bizarre. But he would try. He squatted and raised his hands above his head, spitting and grunting and flailing. The translators in the room were working overtime. Kuali has repeatedly allowed privateer vessels to attack non-combatant merchants in major space lanes, ignoring intergalactic regulations regarding the attack of vessels belonging to member races not involved in conflicts. Our people's ships were delivering food to the refugee moons filled with victims of your protracted war of conquest, and they were raided, enslaved, and sold to the highest bidder. Humanity demands the immediate release of all prisoners, immediate ceasefire on all fronts of your absurd war, and the three-class-eight habitable moons of Quallar for refugee resettlement. The Kuali didn't bother to raise their appendages as they spit-laughed at the demands. Again, Crawford bowed his head and muttered, "Diplomacy is all that separates civilizations from chaos." He turned once more, facing the garad. He adjusted his vocal post-processing device around his neck, bringing his voice down several octaves. It rumbled through the halls as he spoke. The Garad's crimes against our people and those of the galaxy are too numerous to list here. We demand the complete annihilation of the Garadi military assets and withdraw from every planet and outpost back to Garad Prime. Garad must no longer be allowed to take and consume entire systems with reckless abandon and without consideration for long-term viability of the galaxy to support life. The Garad representative laughed, his voice echoing cruelly around the room. Crawford spoke again, this time in his own language. I have been sent here to make one last offer of peace to the members of the Galactic Federation. I call for a vote from all races present. Make your decision clear here and now. Stand for peace in the galaxy and let us work to rebuild it into a more equitable and prosperous place for all life. Cast your votes now. A large display overhead quickly tallied the incoming votes. The gathered delegates laughed in their various languages as the votes stacked up in the decline column. None of the member races were willing to admit their crimes against non-members, nor willing to make any concessions in pursuit of peace. Their laughter slowly faded, however, as they all realized that Terry Crawford was laughing louder than any of them. The garage representative stepped forward. "'For what reason do you express amusement, human filth?' Crawford wiped a tear of mirth from his eye and smiled poorly. "'You see—' Gather delegates while you may laugh at my attempts to frame your many languages with my own voice. You forgot that the language humans are most fluent in. He tapped the plate on his chest, activating the concealed armor beneath the diplomatic regalia. The sleeve of his coat fell away, revealing a cybernetic weapon grafted to his arm. Is violence. End of story. STORY NUMBER TWO STINKY WRITTEN BY ICE-CREAM AND WINE Biograt, the Amendian ambassador, was enjoying his stroll down the main boulevard of the enormous structure that was the space station named Rendezvous. He had been invited to accompany Magdalena Kroll, the resident doctor at the closest thing to an xenobiologist on the station, on her morning constitutional. The boulevard was a hive of activity, as always with representatives of many species to be seen about their business. He never failed to be amazed at the beings of claws, tentacles, pseudopods, sponges that thronged the walkway. Whilst he took in all the sights, he kept a wary eye on Dr. Kroll's accompanying creature, a black and white Terran mammal, known to all and sundry on the station as a stinky arse. He personally had never had a problem with stinky. It wasn't particularly friendly but it wasn't particularly unfriendly either. He knew that it was classified as bad news because even the other humans on the station, with their fascination for pack bonding, were wary of Stinky and left him well alone. He and Magdalena were comparing notes on the various species they saw. He knew more of them as his people had been amongst the stars for much longer than humans. Suddenly, he stopped and grabbed Magdalena's arm "'Be careful, those are Saras. "'They are new addition to the space lanes "'and still think that the laws of the station don't apply to them. "'Security has had trouble with them in the past, "'and they are voracious eaters.' "'They look familiar,' said Magdalena. "'They look like the pitcher plants we have on Terra.' "'Look out!' shouted the Bugrat, "'as the lead Sarra picked up a Stinky "'who had wandered over to Saras and swallowed him whole.' We have to do something, shouted Biograt. He's just ate Stinky. Stinky? said Magdalena. That's a bit harsh, don't you think? What? How can you be so calm? That thing just ate your pet, started Biograt. How? said Magdalena. Do you think the Sarah is gonna let us cut him out? I... I don't know, said Biograt. But we must try to do something. It's too late, said Magdalena. He's already dead. "But." "'But eh, he's your pet. How can you write him off like that?' stammered Biograt. "'I don't understand.' "'What?' said Magdalena? "'Oh, oh, no, sorry, you misunderstand me,' she said, looking at the group of Saras. With that, the Sara that had eaten Stinky started to convulse and fell to the deck, writhing in apparent agony. The Sara convolution ceased, and then what would call a stomach split opened and a black and white face peered out of the hole. Then two paws followed, and then the rest of Stinky crawled out of the carcass. System decontaminate, said Magdalena. With that, Stinky was lifted into the air, and beams of light played over him. He was then set on the deck and wandered back over to Magdalena and Biograt, apparently none the worse for his ordeal. How did he do that? squeaked Biograt, who backed away from Stinky at a pace. The files don't indicate that he could do that. What files, hot Magdalena? The Terran Zoological files, gibbered Zeograt, backing away from Stinky as fast as he was able to. Show me, said the Magdalena. Biograt proffered his tablet. Magdalena took it, scanned it, and laughed. It doesn't even look like him, she said. I know. I thought it was just a mistranslation or a bad image, said Biograt. Magdalena cancelled the page, entered her own search term, and gave the tablet back to Biograt. He looked at what she had typed in on the search bar. The words, Honey Badger, leapt off the page at him. End of story. Story number three. Cheers, Glory Days. Written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot. In a bar, a thousand light years away from Ireland. Was the cold, dark outside, a human raised a glass. Hey, toast! Hey, toast to the cold winds that brought us here. To the dead behind us, and the friends beside us." The patron shuffled uneasily. Humans weren't welcome here. If they had to be here, they should be silent. The universe would prefer never to hear from them again. So no friends here, no surprise. We aren't much loved anymore. But do you remember the glory days, when we were loved? When you welcomed us into your homes? I remember. The bar droid moved to interrupt. His customers were becoming unhappy. Not in a buy-expensive drink way, more a break-stuff vibe. The human looked at the droid. Don't worry, I'm not starting a fight. It's a festival day for my people. I just wanted to remind you all of what we're still around. A dark-shelled creature, drinking quietly at the bar, spoke up. I remember. I even know the festival you speak of. A festival of peace... It's a long time since you humans practiced peace." The human stood. A small creature, heavy gravity, had compacted his species. "'And now you fear us. We answered the call. Save us!' you all cried. "'We saw you're dead. We avenged you. Then we crushed the bastards that attacked you. Not a single one left!' Another Radiant spoke. If "'You killed the ball. You became monsters. You refused to surrender. In our name... You shamed us. Darkness fell on the bar. No one wanted to remember. The fear. The humiliation. The loss. The failure every species in the bar had surrendered in the war. Except one. They didn't need reminding. And here was the worst kind of a reminder. A living human. My name is Luke. I grew up on Earth. I served in the campaigns you all want to forget. I liberated your worlds. I killed the slavers that owned you. Peck yeah, and happy Christmas. The human finished his drink and picked up his jacket. A voice from the back called out. Wait, please. I remember. I remember the dead. I remember when your ships arrived. Let me get you a drink. Call it a, a Christmas present. The speaker rose from his seat. The human looked into the gloom. Pecked me, and thought we killed you all. Not all of us. Your people saved me too. Prisoner of war. No one had ever heard of that before. You had rules. My kind didn't. In the end, the camp released us. Left." To live or die as we wished. The human glanced at the poor and nodded. He picked up his drink and moved towards the table. Many of the other customers began leaving in a hurry. No one wanted to get in the middle of this. If you were in a human camp, then you might remember this toast. He raised his glass. May you never forget what is worth remembering, or remember what is best forgotten. The two drank in silence, wrapped in memory. Outside, the snow fell on a Christmas day. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1862 Story number one. The Children of Mankind. Written by I.M. O.E. Reset. It was done. The capital burns, the air is still, and the machines of the invader were as their steel boots march across the ruined structures. We thought them. We thought that what we used against them was overkill. No! It merely served to fuel the war machine that is their entire race. To understand what happened here, we first have to look 100 years ago. We, the Tressen of the Tressen ascendancy, thought ourselves to be the overlords of the galaxy and the universe. We thought that none can challenge our divine right to rule everything. And that anything that isn't us will be exterminated. Our rule was solid, unshakable even, until we met them. The humans. They were unassuming even by the others we exterminated. They could barely get out of their own gravity bar. They still use chemically propelled weapons. They are even divided in various regions. And even those regions are divided in philosophy, ideology, and religion. Pathetic. Fools. So we simply sent a trans-existential orbiter bomb to them. We thought that they would cease to exist, as their very collective unconscious would overload their minds and fry their thinking organs. No, we were wrong. We never bothered. Check. We never bothered to send another strike. We never bothered to even remember them, who would have known that their collective unconscious was strong enough to make the boundaries of reality and fiction break. When the bomb hit them, it didn't wipe them off as we had thought would. It gave them all a very, very mild headache. Yet. It also registered their popular fiction as part of their collective unconscious, and by some error or another, due to influences unknown, it made what they consider fiction real. It changed them entirely, and by that time, they knew of what we had done to them, and to say that they were all angry is a vast understatement. Humanity, at least according to their accounts, remains divided even more than the pre-interstellar era. Yet, we see them united under what they call as the Human Alliance. Every advanced fictional government they had, from the corrupt to the efficient, started to exist across their home system. Multiple copies of Earth existed at all the same time, all the same orbit, just to house these newcomers to reality. There was a period of confusion and fighting and panic but by sheer charisma of who is now known as the God Emperor, pacified the confused humanity. Mankind planned to get back at us, to tear us apart for our transgressions against them, to make us yield under their might. So they planned, they researched, they developed, and they struck. When humanity ships first appeared upon our territories and sent an ultimatum of unconditional surrender, we scoffed, we laughed, we were angered by the sheer ignorance, thinking that they were mere fools and idiots trying to question our ineffable divine authority. Oh, how we were wrong! The fleets annihilated our name. Their armies burned down our worlds. The first few times we thought it was luck and a fluke, cursing the carelessness of ones in the military. The next few times made us suspicious. The next other few times made us baffled that they can win against us. And the next few times after that made us terrified Throughout the war, Human nations such as the Imperium of Man, the Greater Terran Union, and the Systems Alliance, the Galactic Empire, the Terran Federation, the Terran Dominion, the United Earth Directorate, the Haltham Empire, the Antares Confederation, the United Federation of Planets, the Union of Soviet Specialists Republics, and the United Nations of Terra Origin would resound throughout our society. Warriors such as the Doom Slayer, Commander Dante, Commander Shepard, Spartan John 117, Master Chief, Darth Vader, Jim Rayner, and many others would overturn our logic of ground warfare. Human units that would overcome all odds against them, such as the Imperial 501st Legion, the Spartan 2 Program Blue Team, the 203rd Air Mage Battalion, the Imperial 1st Chapter, and the Japanese 3rd Recon Team. Terrible weapons such as the Death Star, the Sword of Terror, the Yamamoto Cannon, Atomic Incinerator Torpedoes psychic storm annihilators, and humanity's wrath, antimatter, quantum destabilizer warheads would be our nightmares. If only we knew of the devastation this race would cause ours. If only we bothered to check what they really are. If only we bothered to research their thinking, feats, and history. If only... We didn't dismiss them. They fought in many weapons, in many doctrines, in many different armors and weapons, in many different worlds. From the World War II era M1 Garand popular in the combat majors of the Empire, to the various designs of Lair's Gun and Astra Militarum, to highly effective armor-piercing C-14 of the Dominion Marines, to the laser blasters of the Imperial Army to the Argent-powered halberds and sabers of the Night Sentinels, and many more terrible weapons unleashed against our kind. Some offered us a chance to surrender, some offered us a chance to escape, and some offered no chance at all. And now, in our camp, we failed to hold. We unleashed a monster upon the universe more terrible than anything the universe's disaster. They overcome all odds with them, with bullets, with guns, with steel. They did the impossible, mocking the very word in its place, and twisting and crushing it thoroughly until it ceased to exist all together. And now, our empire comes to an end. It is unlikely but to anyone listening out there in the vast void of the cosmos. Run! If you see humanity, do not contact them. If contact and do not let your territory be found. If found, do not provoke them at any cost. If provoked, try to appease their demand at any cost. If appeasement fails, then you can only hope for a quick end either under their blaster fire, bolter shredders, or chainsaws. May you never meet humanity. End of story. Story number two. A trick out of the old book, written by Rednull 97 Why the hell is it so hot here? Asked to Null, a five-foot-tall canine like Sakala. Well, because your federation decided to outlaw orbital warfare. We're stuck on this lovely little ocean-going aircraft carrier. And since your federation decided our patrol routes, we're stuck on this lovely little planet which decided to orbit so close to its sun that temperatures regularly exceed 45 degrees Celsius. And since your federation decided that warships don't need to be designed to operate in temperatures higher than 30 degrees Celsius, our air conditioning system broke. Answered Jack, one of the few humans on board. That was a rhetorical question, and yeah, sure, everything is our fault. This has nothing to do with the fact that your republic started a war with the Zob because they stole some piece of space junk. Countered to null. Voyager. Is not space-drunk, and I very much advise you not to repeat that sentence to any other human. Fine. They stole some piece of uh, not space-drunk script metal. Before the human could interject again, the Sakal continued. Anyway, why aren't we currently eating ice cream? That genius invention of your kind would very much help with this heat. The human decided to ignore the first part and answered. Well, the 2,000 other inhabitants of the vessel had a similar idea, so the ice cream machine decided to pull a McDonald's and stopped working. Crap. Isn't there anything else that we can do against the heat? Do you humans always seem to have a, uh, how do you call it, a trick out of the old book? Now would be the perfect situation for one. Jack thought for a moment before replying, Well, I do have one, and the book it's from isn't just old, it's, uh, practically ancient. If I remember correctly, it's from World War II, so about 2,500 years ago. That's before we even had nukes or spaceflight, but it would get you your ice cream. I don't care how old it is as long as it works. Oh, it will work, and I'm sure you'll love it. The tunnel's face made a skeptical look. The sarcasm is not lost on me. However, if it means I get ice cream, I'm on board. Perfect. Then get your plane ready. I'll meet you on the flight deck in 30. My plane? By that? Well, obviously because unlike you, I already had my mandatory practice flight for this week. Before Tadal could ask how this was relevant, or why he needed a plane in the first place, the human had already disappeared behind the next corner. Damned human, I'll better have my ice cream at the end of this. 30 minutes later, on the flight deck. Tenal was performing the last pre-flight checks when he finally spotted the human walking towards him while pushing a bomb loader, on which instead of a bomb sat a huge barrel. When the human reached the plane, he attached the said barrel in the bomb bay of the plane, before he told Tenal, All oh, ready for takeoff, I'll give you your flight plan via radio. He wanted to ask what the hell the plan was, but the human has already vanished below deck. As soon as he would taken off, however... The human chimed in over the radio. Control to flight 028, call sign good boy. The first thing I need you to do is to climb to 20,000 meters. Good boy to control, 20,000 meters confirmed. But why? And what was that in the barrel? The human answered. Because today you will train in some high-altitude evasive maneuvers, and I have no idea what barrel you are talking about. This is just a routine, weekly training flight. Well, not amused about the fact that the human seemingly made him break some kind of regulation. Why else would he deny the existence of the barrel? Tennell knew official flight control channel was not the place to discuss this, so he ignored his annoyance and continued to climb. Once he was at a target altitude, he keyed the radio. Good boy to control, now at 20,000. The answer came immediately. Control to good boy, 20,000 confirmed. Next, I always wanted to say this, do a barrel roll. Control, please repeat. Control to good boy, I repeat. Do a barrel roll. Well, his anger towards the human crew by the minute, there was no sense in refusing to follow the human's command. It was the official flight plan, after all. It might as well have been a direct order by his superior. So it went on. Himmelman after Cuban 8, Loop after Hammerhead, Tailside after Herb's maneuver. After about 25 minutes, Tanal finally heard the message that he was waiting for. Control the good boy, that was a nice flying there. Now head back to the carrier and land. As soon as his tires touched the deck and his plane came to a stop, Tennell stepped out of the cockpit in order to confront Jack about the meaning behind the whole operation. When he saw him, the human was already working with the bomb loader to unload the barrel. What the hell was that about? Why that aerobatic show? Explain yourself, and where is the ice cream you promised me? The human gave a very relaxed answer. Chill, man. The ice cream machine broke, but we still had lots of needed ingredients. We just needed a different way to freeze and mix it. Something which you accomplished very nicely, by the way. After he cracked open the barrel and the words, And the ice cream is all here, see? We happy? Tenelle only stared at the giant barrel filled with ice cream. Yeah, what? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're happy. End of story. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey. Lord Azrakal. it's difficult to pronounce Dragzoon WRE. Holly's sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.